Wendell Wallace here on Wendell's World of Sports. Before I get into the meat of my podcast, before I start my podcast, I want to give my thoughts and opinions about the John Gruden situation resigning as the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. It came, the recognition came shortly after the New York Times reported that Gruden uses misogynistic and anti-gay language in numerous emails during a seven-year period. And that report came days after 10-year-old, at 10-year-old emails from Gruden surfaced that included a racist comment about NFL Players Association Executive Director DeMarcus Smith as well as vulgar criticism of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. So in a statement, Gruden said that I have resigned as head coach from the Las Vegas Raiders. I love the Raiders, do not want to be a distraction. Thank you to all the players, coaches, staff, and fans of Raider Nation. I'm sorry, I never meant to hurt anyone. And in a statement of his own, Vegas owner Mark Davis said he accepted Gruden's resignation. There is a According to ESPN's Susie Colbert, a Raiders assistant, Rich, I'm just going to spell out spell out his last name, B-I-S-A-C-C-I-A. He's going to be the interim head coach. Interesting, I thought it might be Gus Bradley, who has years, multiple years of head coaching experience, but uh, they're going to go with this guy. So, okay. Um, interesting. A Wall Street Journal reported Friday that Gruden, in an email to Allen, said Smith had lips the size of Michelin tires. <laughs> He put that in an email, not a text, not, you know, not, not in a discussion, you know, in person, this guy put this work and be traced. That's, that's privilege. That's ignorant privilege right there. And then Gruden told ESPN that he routinely uses the term rubber lips to refer to a guy I catch as lying. He can't spit it out. So how do you get Michelin tires from rubber lips tires? Where, where, where did that come from? A rubber lips. How, how did you get Michelin tired from rubber lips? What, what was the jump from, well, you know, normally, you know, DeMarcus Smith is lying. So instead of using rubber lips, I'm just going to go ahead. I, what, was he lying so much that he, he was more than just rubber lipping? I mean, it was just another level. So if you just lie a little bit, you're, you're rubber lipping. But if you're really lying, though, then you've got Michelin tire lips. I mean, the lips the size of Michelin tires. So is that what you mean, John? See, I didn't mean anything racist by it. I, you know, of course, we all know that, you know, the stereotype, you know, black folks, big lips, this, that, the other. I had no idea that stereotype exists. And I had no idea anybody would take the, quote, lips as size as Michelin tires as racist. No flipping idea. And... You know the sad thing is? You know the pathetic thing is? You know why I say in terms of when I always talk about at the beginning of my podcast where, you know, we have to do as a society, we have to do as a people, we have to do, you know, in society in general is to listen, learn, shut up, educate themselves, listen, learn, and then apply the listen and learning that we have uh, received from those who don't look like us, from those who are from this different side of the track, from those of a different gender, from those of a different race, from those of a different nationality, from those who worship another God, from those who might love another person. From you know, well, I always say these things, and then I say because for my generation, for the generation after mine, the generation before mine, it's too late. It's too late for us to have true unity. It's too late for us to have true understanding. It's too late 
for folks to come together and have an honest conversation about what's going on in our world today, in our society today, between the races and the places and the faces and everything like that. It's too late for us. It's too late for us to have a sincere discussion about that and really have people turn the corner, change the corner, educate themselves, respect others, and say, I respect your opinion. It's hard. It's impossible for my generation to do that. To have the utopian society that I wish that I had in my lifetime. It's too late for me. It's too late for my generation. I'm a 52-year-old man. Too late. John Gruden's a 58-year-old man. Too late for him to all, to all of a sudden understand or to sit down with someone of a different race or a different religion or a different gender and really absorb and soak in the learnings and the teachings and the education and this is how we feel and this is what we go through on a day-to-day basis and have John Gruden truly understand. For him, it's too flipping late. The man is 58 years old. He didn't have these, he didn't have these thoughts and opinions first started when he was 48 years old or when he was 45 years old or when he was 52 years old or when he was 50 years old. This is something that's been ingrained in him. And despite the fact that he's been in the NFL for decades around numerous upon numerous upon hundreds of players of color, the fact that he would sit there on an email and write in terms of Demarius Smith, anybody who is of color, that he had the lips the size of Michelin tires and didn't say, oops, well, you know, I usually say rubber lips to uh, refer to a guy I catch as lying. He can't spit it out. To go ahead and put that in an email and for Bruce Allen to receive that as an email and just say no big fucking deal just shows, again, why I always say for my generation, generation after, generation before, too late, too late. We're going to be living in a racist, divided, ignorant, selfish um, society and it's our job as adults it's our job who wants to keep this society moving in a better direction than what we have right now even though if you take a look at the generation before and the generation before and you take a look at the 40s and you take a look at the 1950s and the 60s and the 70s we have made progress without question Barack Obama becoming the head the um, president of the United States hello I mean what better example of progress do you want in this country but we're not moving at the pace we need to. And for us to get where we need to get to, not just in terms of issues and not just return, just not just in terms of relationship amongst black and white people, Latino and black people, Asian and black people, black people uh, or white people and Asians and Muslims and Christians and Jews and atheists and folks from the poor side of town and folks from the rich side of town and folks from um, Northwest Los or, or folks from Summerlin and folks from West Las Vegas or folks from Liberty City and folks from South Beach, folks from Beverly Hills and, and uh, 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 people from Inglewood, people who live in the rich part of uh, Kansas City or St. Louis trying to learn and trying to educate themselves and trying to understand the plight in the everyday's that the folks from Ferguson have to go through, you know, police brutality, all the things that are of ills and defects in our society. For us, it's too late to truly change the way that we want to change before I die. If I live to be another, if I live live another 52 years, which would make me 104, we're still not going to be nearly at the place where we need to be in terms of relationships, respecting others, regardless of race, gender, creed, color, and all those type of things. So it's going to be for us, for us, in our generation to once again press upon the younger generation and the younger generation and the younger generation that this type of bullshit that's happening right now 
cannot be tolerated. Because I've heard some folks already make the argument of, well, you know, it was 10 years ago, and, you know, what's really so racist about that? And, you know, I've never heard any black players that play for John Gruden, for the most part, say that he's a racist. And I've heard black players come out of defense, and I've heard other folks who have worked with him come out and said, I've never seen this giant side of John. And you can sit there and point to the fact that, you know, John has maybe elevated this guy to be a coach, or Coach Gruden has given this black man a chance to do this, that, and the other. I mean, you can point to many examples in terms of John Gruden doing something for blacks or doing something. I mean, a man is married, and I'm quite sure his wife would sit there and be like, John being a misogynist? No, never. The father of my child being a misogynist? No, never. Uh, the father of my child, the man I love, being anti-gay, using that type of stuff, and having those types of feelings about women and gays and black folks and, and, and those type of things? No. Oh, never, not my guy. So Fox News, the race baiters, the jackasses, those on the far right, those with a race agenda, those who want cultural war, those who want to keep us separated will sit there and they will play that stuff in terms of, well, again, it was a situation where I really can't see where the racism lies. I really can't see where everything is so horrible. I, this is a situation where he wasn't even in the league during this time. And what about free speech? And, you know, take a look of his actions instead of his words. And I, I, all of this other bullshit that the ignorant, that those who are really not in tune for those who don't really have any type of relationships on any level at all with black and brown people, gay people, uh, Jewish people, th those folks will have no idea. Asian folks, those folks will have no idea when it comes to, this is the reason why John Gruden had to go. This is the reason why there's so much uproar. This is the reason why he should be punished like he should be. This is not a situation where someone was violating his free speech. This is not a situation where the Los Angeles, excuse me, the Las Vegas Raiders terminating his employment with the franchise is somehow a breach of First Amendment rights and all of this kind of stuff. He said something racist and stupid and misogynistic and anti-gay. Get the fuck out. Bye. And again, for those who want to sit there and say, well, he's trampling on First Amendment rights and that's too harsh and that's too terrible and that's too horrible. Hey, if there's another, he's not banned from the NFL. He's not arrested for what he said. If another team wants to hire him on, I'm quite sure there'll be a little bit of a punishment for Roger Goodell, but uh, from Roger Goodell. But if a team really wanted to hire John Gruden as their coach, they could go ahead ultimately and do it. I, I don't know how well it would work in the community. I don't know how well it would work in the locker room after all this. I don't know how it would work with sponsorships. I don't know how it would work with the fan base in terms of bringing someone like him, and especially in his second foray back as a head coach with the Las Vegas Raiders that he really wasn't successful. His record was well below 500. So all of those things mixed in. I, I don't know how prudent it would be for a organization franchise to hire God, John Gruden, but because of the ignorant and stupid and vicious and vile and disgusting things that he emailed and he thought about and he was uh, his character showing in that in that part, it's not preventing him from getting another job. It's not preventing him from earning a living. I mean, it's, it's it's so 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 we need to stop with that bullshit. We need to stop because you know that's what's coming. You you know from those who have an agenda to keep us apart. We know from those who have the agenda of keeping those on the other side of the tracks ignorant in terms of the um, education that they need to have concerning racism and all those type of things. You know, the the, the keep the privileged even more privileged. 
You know, they're going to have to throw, they're going to be throwing that out there. You know, they're going to play John Gruden as the victim in this. You, you know it's coming. And you know there's thousands of communities out there that are going to be stupid enough to fall for it because, after all, I don't live in the dumbest country by far for nothing. There's plenty of examples to uh, back up my, uh, my premise or my uh, thoughts and opinions about that. So it's going to be interesting moving forward to see exactly what goes on. And I'm interested to see, because according to the uh, Times in the story, Gruden sent emails to Bruce Allen, then the president of the Washington football team and others during a seven-year period that ended in 2018. And we know about the nonsense. We know about some of the things that went on. We know about the sexual harassment. We know about women being treated as objects and being, and being disrespected in the lowest form. We know all of those things that happened with the football organization in Washington, D.C., my Washington football team led by owner Daniel Snyder. So this is just another example of a front office run amok with vile, disgusting human beings. And on top of all that, Bruce Allen was never a good executive to begin with. So it wasn't even like a situation where Bruce Allen was winning a championship. So where that type of stuff have to be, would, would be put away, would be put aside, would be uh, locked so no one can find it. This was well known throughout the organization in Washington. I don't give a damn what, uh, what Snyder and everything, everybody else is going to say with, man, we had no idea that uh, Gruden was sending these emails to uh, these folks. No, uh, Bruce Allen and you know, Gruden, no idea. Had no idea. You know, despite the fact that, you know, we ran our front office, we ran part of our organization, our franchise, like a, like a college frat party, and had no flipping idea that this type of shit was going on. The worst part is, yeah, we had no idea. We had an idea that was going on, but we were all part of the joke. We all thought it was funny. We all thought it was cute. We all thought it was, well, while not professional, professional enough. So when Gruden was sending Allen, you know, topless pictures of the Washington football team's cheerleaders, yeah, those guys knew what was going on. They just thought, cool, here we got a, you know, we got a good shot of a half-naked uh, female who's hot. Hell Yeah. So please spare me. And again, is the NFL going to do anything? Another situation? How many times does Snyder owning this club, owning my Washington football team, how many times is he going to be made a fool of? How many times is he going to have examples of a franchise that is a complete joke, that is more dysfunctional than ever before? And the NFL owners are still going to say, well, you know, we're going to go ahead and allow him to uh, keep his team because shit, if we uh, let him go, if we go ahead and vote him out because of the stuff that he's doing now, well then, you know, what's going to be in my closet when they open up that people are going to say he needs to go, I need to give up my team. So the boys club is not going to let one of their boys give up the team because, oh, I don't know, the other owner, all of us owners all of a sudden have a uh, some type of uh, moral fiber or have uh, grown a backbone. So it's it's... <laughs> what Gruden emailed to Allen continued emailed uh, he uh, emailed to Allen that Goodell shouldn't have have uh, shouldn't have pressured uh, St. Louis Rams coach Jeff Fisher when he was the coach of the Rams Jeff Fisher to draft quote unquote queers referring to former defensive end Michael Sam a game player who was drafted in 2014 and Gruden in emails criticized the hiring of women as referees and also the acceptance of players protesting for racial justice during 
the national anthem. As I mentioned before, he also exchanged photos of topless women with uh, Bruce Allen, including one of the Washington football team's cheerleaders. So where are we going to go with this? How are you going to defend this? How are we going to defend this here? For those who are going to say this, how are we going to defend this? According to the Times, Gruden used an anti-gay slur in several instances while referring to Goodell and, and used offensive language to describe some owners, coaches, and media members who covered a league. What are we going to do here? Gruden, Gruden used an anti-gay slur. I'm quite sure he probably called him a faggot. In several instances while referring to Goodell and often used language to describe some owners, coaches, and media members who covered the league. So I'm quite sure he probably called them bitches or something like that. Cause let, let, let's, uh, let's be real, men. Let's, let's keep it real. You know, if we're going to go ahead and we're going to try to demean somebody, what, what kind of words are we going to use as far as having an anti-gay slur? If we're going to demean somebody, nine, nine, nine out of ten of us are going to use the term faggot. That faggot, this, that, and the other. And when we're going to demean somebody and try to uh, demean and diminish his manhood, what user, what word are we going to use? What derogatory word are we going to use when we're going to do that? We're going to call somebody a bitch. These owners are nothing but a bunch of bitches, right? These guys are hiring women. These, these guys are accepting the players protesting for racial justice during the national anthem. Those guys are acting like what? A bunch of bitches. Come on, come on. I've said it before. You've said it before. We've all said it before. I haven't used the word faggot in a long time. I've never liked that word. Never used that word. So I, I, don't, I haven't used the word faggot. And I'm, not, and I'm not trying to say that I'm, you know, holier than thou and I'm better than everybody else, this, that, and the other. I mean, in my ignorant ways, I've used uh, other anti-gay slurs to describe, uh, not maybe not gays, but if I want to demean somebody, put somebody down, I'll use another. I used to use another term. I've tried to educate myself not to do that. But, uh, yeah, I, I still use the word bitches when I'm um, speaking about that, you know? So that's probably the word that Gruden was using when he was describing some owners, coaches, and media members who cover the league. And let's be real here. When you're talking about... Now, I'm, I've never sent that in an email. I've never sent that to... Uh, I've never used that in a professional setting. I've never done that before. I, I, I've used it in a text. I've used it... Uh, when, you know, at the bar or at the club or whatever, and I want to uh, use that word, if I'm going to use that word, but I've never put the B-I-T-C-H's, B-I-T-C-H-E-S's in a professional text. W- would never do that. So, again, it, it shows shows um, privilege uh, beyond reproach in this situation. And I, and I understand what people are going to say. I know where we're coming from with this. Well, you know, when Gruden said that he's not a racist. Here's an education for for, for white folks and for other folks who have always sat there and said, you know, well, you know, might might have a little bit of confusion, misunderstanding, not truly knowledgeable and educated when it comes to a uh, who is being a racist, using racist terms and such. Someone who is racist, I think for most white folks and other folks, when we speak about someone who's a racist, we're speaking about someone who's walking around calling everybody a nigger, uh, you know, um, you know, coon, you know, th- those type of things, uh, jungle bunny. Those who really truly believe that black folks are inferior just based on their skin color, not because of environment, not because of lack of chances, not because they're being brainwashed by the uh, far left and the woke to uh, be brainwashed to make themselves ignorant. No, 
a racist among most white people that you describe, if you ask them what is a racist, they will say, well, as I mentioned before, you know, it's a situation where, uh, you know, you do to turn nigger. Uh, they break into someone's home and they defecate and they destroy properties. They'll do damage to a black person just based on the color of their skin. Someone who will go find somebody and hang somebody or shoot somebody or destruction of property with a swastika or something like that. That's to me, for most white folks, and I shouldn't say most white folks, but a good number of white folks, that is their quote unquote definition of what a racist is all about. Someone from the KKK, someone with the hoods and the sheets and the white sheets and everything going around burning crosses that is your quote-unquote definition of what a racist is that's very outdated and it's true but it's also very outdated so when Gruden sat up there and said hey I want to say right now that I'm not a racist okay maybe you're not I don't know in conversation how many times if you ever used the word nigger or coon or anything like that that jigaboo I don't know if you've ever said those type of things hell I say those things when I'm talking about other black folks if I'm talking about say steel I'm calling her a jigaboo if I'm talking about Candace Owens I'm calling her a coon if I'm talking about Paris Denard I'm calling him a Uncle Tom if I talk about any of these folks who are acting that way that's exactly what I'm going to call them but for John Gruden he'll say these things he'll say to us I've never used the word nigger how can you call me a racist? I've never used the word nigger. I don't think that black people are inferior to white people just because of the color of their skin. I would never do any harm toward anybody based on the color of their skin. So how in the world can you call me a racist if I truly don't have those types of feelings in my heart? I would never do anything. If I'm, you know, with a, you know, I, I hire black people. I put my trust as far as football is concerned in black people. I've worked with black people. I've, you know, all of these type of things. So how can you call me a racist? Here's the thing, John, you might not be a racist, but in those emails that you sent where you were so flippant and you were so casual and you were so comfortable to send those type of things, if you ain't racist, which is the worst thing that you could be, your privilege is overflowing. Your lack of common sense toward the area of race and what's going on with other folks not your skin color is alarming so at the very least at the very least your 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 white privilege shown through and through and it's been shining for years upon years upon years so that that's the very worst right there again I don't know John Gruden running around throwing out racial epithets. I don't know if John Gruden is referring to all gay people as faggots or I don't know or queers or whatever like that. I don't know if John Gruden refers to women as bitches or skanks or hoes or anything like that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't know. Never met the man. But I can tell by those actions from those emails that uh you know again a incredible lack of awareness and understanding amongst others. So he got what he deserved. He he got what he deserved. Now, I'm all for John Gruden trying to right or wrong. If he sincerely is like, man, you know what? I um, I need to uh, go ahead and I need to do some soul searching and I need to go ahead and get some education. I need to go ahead and learn what I did, why it was so wrong. I need to uh, speak, speak to others who are not like me. I need to go ahead and learn the rights. You know, I need to make corrections from what I did. And I need to learn, not because I want to get back in the NFL, 
Not because, you know, I, I miss the NFL, I want to coach again, or I want to get back on the television and be a broadcaster. Not, not, not because I want to work for another organization, none of those things. Just because, shit, man, I'm 58 years old and I'm a father and a uh, wife. Excuse me, I'm a father and a husband. I want to go ahead and, and uh, see what I can do to become a better human being for my kids, for my grandkids, and for my wife and such, and be a better member of society. So maybe people of a younger generation can learn from my mistakes and not make my mistakes. And when we move along in this world that we live in, and when I'm dead and gone, my final chapter in terms of relevance in this world won't be he was fired from the Las Vegas Raiders because of years of anti-gay, racist, misogynistic type of shit. You know, maybe there can be a happy ending toward this story that we have in terms of, yeah, this was, this is why John Gruden got fired, but you know what? In terms of being of him being a human being, in terms of him being a better human being, and in being a better human being, did what he needed to do to help society move forward in a more loving, respectful, harmonious place, less discrimination, less oppression, more understanding, more respect for everybody, gay, women, blacks, everybody. Maybe John Gruden can turn this, this situation into a positive. Maybe the Lord is saying, you know what, man, this is, this is going to be the vehicle for you to drive so you can go ahead and you can bring more people down the avenue of love and peace and harmony and unity. The man made, what, he's in his third year at the Graders coach, so what, the man has made $30, $40 million? John Gruden don't need to work anymore. John Gruden has made hundreds of millions of dollars through the league, through coaching, through endorsements, all of those type of things. John Gruden doesn't need to work anymore. John Gruden doesn't need the money. So maybe what John Gruden can do now is start dedicating himself to becoming a better, more understanding, loving person for everyone, to everyone. Maybe this is the wake-up call that he needs. The Lord works in the mysterious ways. So that's my deal with, with John Gruden. And with the NFL, again, when we take a look at the hiring practices of the NFL, when we take a look at the uh, situation, Jerry Jones uh, came out. Let me see here. Let me find that uh, article. Jerry Jones you know, response to John Gruden's resignation leak, uh, email comments. And he was speaking about, uh, I know these people, I know everybody you've been reading about. They're outstanding proponents of our game. They have represented this game in many cases beautifully. Certainly, we all continue to recognize what a spotlight you're in and the way we should express ourselves. So if... <laughs> A privileged white man. If you're a privileged, really, really rich white man, privileged in so many areas. So, Mr. Jones, they're outstanding proponents of our game. How is John Gruden an outstanding proponent of our game when he's out there sending emails calling players who play for his team that are gay queers? And it's pretty interesting because he has a gay player on his team right now who's openly gay, who came out and openly gay, and he's on the uh, Raiders right now. So, so it's, it's an interesting dichotomy in that. So how in the world can you be speaking about Bruce Allen and John Gruden and some of the things that they did and call them outstanding proponents of our game and have represented the game in many cases beautifully? What ways? In what cases? 
what what cases are we talking about her here? Certainly, we all continue to recognize what a spotlight you're in and the way you should express yourself. So again, if you're going to be a racist, if you're going to be misogynistic, if you're going to be anti-gay, make sure you hide that evidence. Make sure you hide that shit. If you're going to be gay and racist and shit, make sure you know who you're speaking about. And for God's sakes, do not text, do not email, nothing. Don't post, don't tweet, nothing. Jones declined to comment on whether Gruden should have lost his job. I don't have anything I would want to express one way or the other. Jones said when asked from the standpoint of uh, contribution, I know we are all accountable to even a, if you will, fleeting or minor part of our actions. We all are accountable to those. That's all I want to comment on that. Sean Sharif, my man at the... uh, who was uh, doing the interview, or at least the uh, 105.3, the fan where he works. I think that the uh, interviews Jerry Jones every uh, Monday. You should have asked him, if a coach did that on, if someone did that, was employed by you, would you fire him? If you, if John Gruden was working for you and this stuff came out, would you fire him? That should have been his next coach. Would, would that have been talked about? Would that have been a, a, a situation that you guys would have discussed? That's what he should have asked, but you know, talk about it, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And when you're a billion fucking air and you're Jerry Jones, you um, you call the shots. You run your life and you run uh, everything through pain and strife. So there you go. So that's my thoughts and opinions about John Gruden. I wanted to make this quick, but I uh, got going. I got it, uh, my blood boiling a little bit about that. So uh, yeah, let me go ahead and start the program. Oh, by the way, Wendell's World of Sports was just truly Wendell Wallace. Love the uh, downloads, love the reviews, love all the good stuff. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, all that good stuff, man. Make sure that you go ahead and you uh, give me them five stars. Make sure you go ahead and you download this bad boy. Make sure that you go ahead and leave your thoughts and opinions about what's happening with this show right here, Wendell's World of Sports, is growing leaps and bounds every single day. There's a whole lot of shit that's going to be popping up that um, I'm excited about in the very near future. So, yeah, we have just begun to scratch the surface on what this podcast and the brand of Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, is all about. So, download, rate, review, subscribe, and most importantly, enjoy. Now, with that being said, let me go ahead and start the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tips in. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roy, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. I want to thank you so much. Merci for giving me the opportunity for speaking my mind, giving you my thoughts and opinions about the whole John Gruden situation. You know, here on Wendell's World of Sports, we talk about what's happening in the world of sports. We talk about what's going on in the NFL and 
and, and college football and college basketball and the love of my life, Georgetown Hoyas. And we speak about all that stuff. And I speak about it with great glee and enthusiasm and passion. I hope that comes across when I do these podcasts. One thing also that I like to uh, discuss is the world itself and how it works into sports. The fact, the fact that sports in the world are not uh, on different planes. The fact that those guys, that the, the, the world of sports and the world itself is not two different entities that never cross. They do cross. And when they do, when it's political or when it's racial or whatever, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to talk about it because those are the things that uh, impact the world of sports. John Gruden and the racist remarks and some of the things that he said and some of the things that he emailed had a profound impact not just on the NFL, but on the Las Vegas Raiders. They're looking for a new flipping coach, a team that was supposed to be one of the teams that was going to improve greatly upon the last couple of seasons now or in the need for a head coach, and right now their team is in disarray. We'll see what happens. We'll see how they rebound. We'll see how they uh, perform after this. But, you know, in a situation like this, you have to get into the meat of the issue in terms of what John Gruden did, why John Gruden was fired. Will John Gruden get another job? How John Gruden can turn this into a better situation for him? And with Wendell's World in Sports, I try to give it to you in terms of the different nuances of the story and speak about it in different terms other than, you know, what's that going to do now for the Raiders moving forward? There'll be a lot of time to speak about that, but just in the societal sense, I want to give you my thoughts and opinions about that, man. As I always mentioned before here on Wendell's World of Sports, I always mention that, you know, it's time for us to talk about what's happening in the world of sports, but before I do, you know what I always do. You know what I'm always going to have to do. I'm always going to have to ask you, man, how are you doing? Young lady, how are you doing? Old lady, how are you doing? Old man, how are you doing? Younger man, how are you doing? What's happening, y'all? What's going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Shalom, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa, namaste, Wendell's World and Sports. My way of saying hello to everybody across the globe who is listening to this podcast. I thank you very much. Special dedication for those listening all across Europe. Special dedication for those who are listening in the great country of Canada. Special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast and downloading this podcast and giving me rates and reviews and such in the wonderful country of Australia. I still want to get down there, man. And depending upon what happens in 2024 in this country, I might be looking to a new, I might be looking to migrate to a new country anywhere. Anyway, so, uh, you know, depending upon what happens in 2024, uh, Australia is definitely on my list. So I want to give a special shout out and special dedication to that wonderful, beautiful country country. Also want to give a shout out to my country, the country that I love with all this warts, with all of his deficiencies, with all his ills and defects, the country that I love, the racist, ignorant, divided states of America. I want to give a shout out. I want to give a special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in Richardson, Texas. I want to give a shout out for those who are listening to this podcast in Albany, New York. I want to give a shout out for those who are listening to this podcast in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a special dedication for those who are listening to this podcast in Louisiana, in Alabama, in Maryland, in New York, in Oklahoma. Special dedication for those who are listening. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. So, yeah, man, we're all about unity, harmony, love, peace, happiness. And as I mentioned before, doing what we need to do, not for my generation, not for your generation, not for the generation before and after us. What can we do in terms of showing the example that, you know what, despite skin color, despite 
uh, gender, despite financial background, despite worship of God, despite political affiliation, despite all of those things, judging people based on who they are as human beings, moral fiber, character, goes a much more, goes a lot farther in terms of having a utopian society where love, peace, unity, harmony rules instead of divisiveness, ignorance, privilege, and a lack of understanding, a lack of wanting to understand, a lack of wanting to learn from others. We have to do everything that we can to make sure that that doesn't happen, not for my generation, too late for us to be truly unified as a country, but for the younger generation and younger generations, man, I'm just hoping by the time the 22nd century rolls around that we could be so much closer to having truly a United States if this planet is still around by that time. I won't be around, but hopefully by that time that uh, we'll be living, you'll be living, or your children will be living, or your great-great-grandchildren will be living in a world that is mostly based on unity, love, happiness, togetherness, understanding, education, and forgiveness and love and those type of things other than what we're living on right now, which is, as I mentioned before, hate, divisiveness, selfishness, what can be done for me and nobody else, that type of thing. So Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, let me get into speaking about what's happening in the NFL. Yeah, I wanted to go ahead and talk about Justin Herbert and the loss. Angeles Chargers over the uh, Cleveland Browns and talk about that game. Yeah, I wanted to go ahead and talk about Lamar Jackson's unbelievable performance on Monday night against the Indianapolis Colts. 434 passing yards. The man had over 500 total yards by himself. He accounted for like 95% of the total yards on offense for Baltimore. I wanted to do all those things and maybe in a second segment I will go ahead and I will talk about those things but I want to focus I want to concentrate I want to give attention to my brothers and sisters out there in Kansas City Missouri because not just with you guys I know that you guys are going to be at the center of discussion and maybe have the most say and the most passion regarding this out there Kansas City football fans not just in KC Missouri but also all over the globe but also, let me bring in some Buffalo Bill fans. Could y'all come over here for a second, please? Thank you very much. I appreciate this because I want you guys to be part of this conversation, too. I want you guys to uh, have a uh, say in this conversation, too. I don't want the Kansas City football fans to be hogging all of the uh, airtime. So the question is, after week five, and again, it's week five, and yeah, I, I know I have always said, hey, man, I don't make any proclamations or anything written stone about who's doing what, where, to, what, when, how, or where as far as football is concerned until much later on in the season, but I'm just asking Buffalo Bills fans, Kansas City football fans, and football fans in general, is it time for a serious discussion about uh, there's a new sheriff in town in the AFC and his name ain't Reggie Hammond. His name might be Josh Allen and he's employed by the Buffalo Bills because Buffalo went to Kansas City and came away with a convincing 38-20 win on Sunday night. Big time, explosive plays were the key to Buffalo's win. They really think about it. They had 11 possessions in the game against KC. They ran 54 plays, right? The Bills ran 54 plays total for 436 yards. That's an average of eight yards per play, man. Kansas City defense, what, what, what are we going to do about this? Where are we going to go with this? What's going to be the fixture of this? Is fixture even a fucking word? Down 10-7 midway through the second quarter. Josh Allen hit Emmanuel Sanders with a 35-yard touchdown pass. It was a beautiful pass, too, which gave them the lead and control of the game. 
Kansas City fans that they never relinquish. Could you guys over in Buffalo, could you guys keep it down when I'm doing the highlights here or when I'm speaking about the highlights? Yeah, I know you guys were great. Nah, I know you guys were awesome. But the taunting, the beating of the chest, and if I have to hear one of you clowns talk about circle the wagons like the Buffalo Bills in honor of Chris Berman, I'm going to lose my fl- I'm going to lose my mind. Back to what I was talking about. Key point of the game. Key point of the game. In Kansas City, man, you guys have a right to be upset. I'd be pissed off too. Casey trailing 31 to 20, 12 minutes left in the game after Kansas City scored a touchdown. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, all right, 31 20, 12 minutes left to go. Plenty of time. We got Patrick Mahomes. We got Patrick Mahomes. We got Patrick Mahomes. We can go ahead and we can do this. So the crowd is up. The fever for, you know, making a big play is up. The crowd is rabid for something great to happen. Allen goes back to pass. He throws a moon ball to the center of the field. It was intercepted, and everybody was just going nuts in in terms of Kansas City fans, in terms of, yeah, man, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. Come back. Here we go. And come on. Come on. Buffalo, don't give me some bullshit. I'm like, eh, no big deal, no big deal. Y'all were getting nervous. I know y'all were getting nervous. Don't play me like, eh, no big deal. You guys were getting nervous when you threw that interception. You were like, oh, shit. They go down here here and score now. It's going to be, what, 30-26, two-point conversion? Oh, shit. And there's still 12 minutes left to go? Oh, shit. We've seen Patrick Mahomes do this nonsense before. Oh, shit. So, again, he threw the ball under pressure, intercepted, but flag on the play. And it was like, you've got to be... I have no stake in the game. I'm a Washington football fan, man. You think that uh, I give a rat's ass about Buffalo and Kansas City? My, my team ain't going nowhere this year with the defense that we're playing. So I saw that flag on the field. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. This is either going to be holding or the worst roughing the penalty pass uh, call I've ever seen in my life. Roughing the passer. Personal foul on Frank Clark. <laughs> KC would have had the ball on his 41-yard line. So instead of getting that ball, the momentum, everything, down the toilet. And the Bills, to your credit, to your credit, took advantage of that ridiculous call. Horrible call. Awful call. Josh Allen is what, about 6'5", 6'6", somewhere around there? 230, 240? And you're going to protect him like he's Fran flipping Tarkington? Come on, man. Again, hey, the moneymakers... People come to see the quarterbacks, this, that, and the other. Josh Allen, rightfully so, is one of the marquee names and one of the elite quarterbacks in the league. I get all that. But damn, man, can we stop treating this guy like he's a Sid Luckman in terms of height and stature? The man is six foot five. The man is, size, is the size of a linebacker. The man is bigger than safeties and cornerbacks. Cornerbacks don't want to have nothing to do with him. You remember that third down play where he leaped? Over that cornerback. That man didn't want to have anything to do with him in terms of squaring him up and putting him down. Allen is too flipping big. And you're going to treat this guy like he's a waif? Come on. Again, I understand you got to respect the quarterback. I understand you can't hit the guy in the head. And I understand if you, you know, if if he launches the football or if he passes the football, you you can't take a step or two and then, you know, uh, tackle him. I, I get all those things. But, man, we've got to start using a little bit more common sense. We need to start treating quarterbacks a little bit differently because you take a look at the size of these quarterbacks that are playing the game now. These guys, again, are about the size of middle linebackers. Again, protect them, but don't baby these guys. And that was a flipping baby call. Buffalo, you know this, too. You know this, too. And, again, Kansas City, they couldn't make the stop. Buffalo took advantage of it like great football teams do. So, 
touchdown and went on a game-clinching 85-yard touchdown drive. Lasted nearly eight minutes. A couple of third-down convergence. Oh, well. You know what? Championship teams, great teams, overcome bad calls. Great team, championship teams, take advantage of bad calls. Where do we stand after five weeks when I talk about great teams versus great teams? Which one right now, right now, right now, right now, Kansas City and Buffalo is a great team. And which one is trying to find his mojo? Trying to uh, get her groove back. Trying to get uh, his groove back. Bill's on, you know, Bill's defense on Kansas City and Mahomes was very basic. You know, I heard most, a lot of people, Chris Collins was uh, bringing it up so, also in terms of the way the Bills were playing defense. They used a scheme that relied almost exclusively on a four-man rush with seven defenders to coverage. So it had to be something where you had to dink and dunk, dink and dunk, dink and dunk, and Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City offense and Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid didn't have the discipline or the patience to go ahead and just dink and dunk them to death. According to the NFL Next Gen Stats, Buffalo never blitzed on Mahomes' 56 dropbacks, 54 pass attempts, two of them were sacks, but uh, never blitzed. So this was a situation where we're a bend but don't break defense. We're going to go ahead and we're going to play on your impatience. You know, instead of taking singles, instead of, you know, instead of doing that, as I'm watching the uh, baseball game right now between the Dodgers and the uh, Giants, but instead of taking singles, Mahomes was looking for home runs and it didn't work through a couple of interceptions. Now, one of the interceptions that would return for a touchdown wasn't his fault, but uh, still, it was a lack of a, a running game, which Kansas City had none. And second, it was a situation where they fell behind. Maybe there was a situation where they started getting a little panicky because of they know what their defense is all about. And um, they rushed them some things, and being a really good, elite football team as of five weeks so far right now, or at least in week five, Buffalo took advantage of that. So I'm taking a look, because I remember last podcast I was speaking about, yeah, you know, I think that uh, Arizona's win over the Rams last week was considered the most impressive win of the season so far. I'm still going to stick with that. I think that, uh, and, and what did that say? And it's just my opinion. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the minority here in terms of thinking that, but in terms of, um, you know, the, the most impressive victory so far through five games. You no, know, most people are going to say, hey, you know what? Kansas, excuse me, Buffalo coming into Kansas City on a Sunday night had an hour and two minute rain delay, and they, they came out and they squashed them. They uh, put the beat down on them. They laid the smack down on them if you smell what Josh Allen and Sean McDermott are cooking. So most people will say, you know, this was the most unbelievable and incredible and most impressive win of the season so far. I'm going to still go with Arizona's victory over the Rams. The fact that the Rams did it, excuse me, Arizona did it on the road, and the Rams were coming off a victory over the uh, Tampa, Tampa Tom Buccaneers. They were number one in the uh, player player rankings. Matthew Stafford, or the team rankings, they were number one, speaking of the Rams. Matthew Stafford was the uh, MVP after three weeks and all this kind of stuff. And Arizona came down and um, beat the uh, snot at them because Kyler Murray said so. So I'm still going to go with that, but second got to be Buffalo over Kansas City. And I think people who say that the win by Buffalo over Kansas City was the most impressive victory so far is still believing in the Kansas City team that they've seen for the past three years. As of five weeks so far this season, that Kansas City football team does not exist. 
but one that resembled the team first-year Patrick Mahomes with a full-time starting one to the AFC Championship game where they lost in overtime to the New England Patriots and had multiple opportunities to win that game. Then the second year with Patrick Mahomes as the starting quarterback, they go ahead and win the Super Bowl. Then the third year, they go ahead and make it to the Super Bowl and have to play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with an outstanding defensive coordinator who should get another opportunity as a coach in in, uh, Todd Bowles going up against an offensive line in Kansas City that was decimated by injury. So you could maybe kind of, you know, make an excuse for that, why the game wasn't more competitive. But uh, the changes that Kansas City made on the offensive line, you bring back Patrick Mahomes, you still have Tyreek Hill, you still have Travis Kelsey, you still have Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy as the coach. So the chemistry, the offensive philosophy, everything is still there. So you're thinking that going into the season that Kansas City is still going to be the creme de la creme in terms of the AFC, even after four weeks when they're 2-2, two and two, we're still thinking about this Kansas City team in terms of them being the juggernaut that they were for the past three seasons with Mahomes as the full-time starting quarterback for that squad. Not anymore through five games. I'm not saying this is going to be something where it's going to remain that way. That's to be seen. I think Kansas City is too talented. I think Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes. I think at the offensive line with three new starters, continue to gel. I don't know what they're going to do about the uh, running game with Clyde uh, Edwards-Elair going to be out for a while with a sustained injury. I don't know exactly what they're going to be doing. I don't know if they're waiting on Josh Gordon to get into football shape for them to be, for him to be the savior to add them another weapon. But um, as of right now, Kansas City is not that football team. Again, we're only in the week five. So I'm not saying that this is going to continue. But if you take a look at that competition in terms of trying to get the title of most impressive win of the season so far, I'm still going to go with the Arizona Cardinals victory over the LA Rams. And coming to second is going to be Buffalo's performance and beatdown on Sunday night over the Kansas City used to be champions. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So um, Buffalo, the best team in the uh, AFC right now? My Buffalonians, what do you think? Begrudgingly, Kansas Cityans? <laughs> you got to give it to the Bills, man. Right now, I know what Kansas City is saying. Big fucking deal five weeks into the season, motherfucker. How about week 17? We kind of revisit this uh, discussion. Okay. But as of right now, Buffalo's the best team in the AFC. Scored 35 points in four straight games. Have the uh, best point differential in the league. They're up to plus 108 in that category. The second team is the Cardinals with 62 then followed by the Cowboys so the point differential is wide and the Bills haven't been subjugated yeah they played the uh, Houston Texans and yeah they played the Washington Snyderskins so they haven't played murderer's row but um you know that performance against again Kansas City kind of validates you know what they might have played those squads but uh, unlike Cleveland and unlike some others uh, they did what they needed to do was showing their dominance. Yeah, they blew the shit out of Miami in a game that was 35 nothing, which was kind of like, eh, C-plus type of game. But it started them rolling. And then when they played Washington, they really got rolling. And then when they played Houston, they really got rolling. And now they're playing, or now after this game against Kansas City, Josh Allen, mm-hmm, playing like an MVP level, played at an MVP level through the uh, past three games. Take a look at the schedule, man. Take a look what they got the next 10 games. You're at Tennessee. If you're a Buffalo Bill, Bill fan, read it off with me, Buffalo. Who are going to be the Bills opponents for the next 10 games, right? We've got what? At Tennessee, correct. Then where we go? Miami, there we go. Then after that, they got where? 
pet Jacksonville. <laughs> and then after that, they got where they got after Jacksonville. They got who? They're at the New- <laughs> they're at the New York Jets. <laughs> what <Well>, I can't. <laughs> You're gonna have them. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, I know the NFL. I know anything can happen from week to week. I got that. But man, in two weeks, you know, after Tennessee, they played Miami, Jacksonville, and Indy. <laughs> Three homecoming games. After the Jets, I'm sorry. After the Jets, they uh, go back home to Indy. Blew a blew a lead against um, Baltimore the other night because Rico Blankenship couldn't make a, a field goal. Looked like he was a fresh back back when he was a freshman at Georgia. Um, they're at New Orleans. Jameis still doing his thing. His inconsistency is concerned, even though he played well against the uh, against my Washington football team. New England. They're at home against New England. Then at Tampa Bay, right? Right. Then where, where we go after Tampa Bay? That's going to be a hell of a game. That's going to be a hell of a game. Buffalo and uh, Tampa Bay. I'm looking forward to that one. Hopefully everybody's going to be injured. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I hope everybody's injured. Hopefully no one is going to be injured. The key players. Hopefully. Um, Tampa Bay will get some of their secondary guys back. Could we be looking at a Super Bowl preview? What game is that? Uh, four, that'd be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Week thirteen. We should have a much better understanding about what these teams are all about by then, right? So, Buffalo at Tampa Bay. Super Bowl preview. All right, hey, 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 Chiefs fans. Kansas City fans, I got you, I got you, I understand, I believe in Patrick Mahone, but I got you, I got you, but I'm just asking both fans right here, I know what y'all are going to say. So you got Tampa Bay, then you got Carolina, and then you're at New England, so man, look, let's say you just hate the Bills, and for some reason you think that they're a mirage, and their running game stinks, and yeah, their defense is good, but look who they played, and you know, Patrick Mahomes had an off night and all this kind of stuff. So let's just say that you're, not only for the Bills, you're talking about the glass for them being half empty. Let's just say that they're damn near, there's no water in the glass at all, all right? I mean, to save yourself from complete embarrassment, you would probably say that after these 10 games, Tennessee, Miami, Jacksonville, the Jets, Indy, New Orleans, New England, Tampa, Carolina, and then New England again. New England, the first New England game is going to be at home, and then the last uh, New England game is going to be on the road. So even if you're just a Bills hater to the nth degree, what are we looking at here? Where you're not, where you're not going to be laughed out and, and be disrespected? What do you say? An eleven and four? After everything is all said and done, right now they're four and one. So what do you see the losses if you just say that I hate? the Bills and they stink and they're overrated and I can never root for a guy who played football at Wyoming and the running game stinks and they're probably going to get some injuries and this, that, and the other. Where do you think the three losses right now are going to go if you're speaking about the Bills being 11-4 or even 10-5? Do you think Jameis can have the game of his life? you think Carson Wentz can go ahead and do some things on the road against Buffalo? you think... Uh, Bill Belichick is just too damn good to have New England lose to Buffalo twice. You think the Tampa Bay being the Super Bowl champs are going to uh, go ahead and get the job done because Tom Brady is not going to lose to Buffalo? I mean, what are we looking at here? Potential losses. Four losses are what? New England, Tampa Bay, maybe Tennessee, Derrick Henry, maybe after the win over Kansas City, those guys are coming on an emotional high. They go to 
Tennessee on the road. Tennessee is going to be pumped up to play. Maybe Derrick Henry goes buck wild and runs for uh, 215 or 220 or some nonsense like that. So maybe you could take a look at letdown game. Derrick Henry runs nuts. So you can maybe look at a loss at Tennessee. New England's going to get them once because in Bill Belichick, you still trust. Tampa Bay, because in Tom Brady, you definitely trust. That would be their four losses right there. Do you really see them losing? I mean, you really can't see them losing to uh, Miami, right? They've, they've beaten Miami like 42 nothing and 42-something and 35 nothing the last uh, games they play, and they play them on the road. Excuse me, and they play Miami at home. They're not losing that game. I should never say never in the NFL. More than likely, Buffalo is not losing that game. I mean, Jacksonville? The Jets? Indy? New Orleans? I don't know, man. So, the worst they can be is 11-4, 10-5. But really, you take a look at that, 13-2. Would you, could you believe 13-2? As I mentioned before, even with the NFL where... Week to week, Sundays to Sunday, you don't know what the flip is going on in terms of, man, how in the hell did that happen? Because you know Buffalo is in line for a bad game. All teams do it, except for the 2007 New England Patriots who romped through the entire regular season undefeated. Every other team in the last 20 to 25 years or before or after 1973 is going to have one bad game. Always happens. So where's the bad game going to be? Even with a bad game, they're going to beat Jacksonville. Even with a bad game, they're going to beat the Jets. Even with a bad game, they should beat New Orleans. So the only hiccups that I can see is, again, Tennessee, New England, Tampa Bay. The only area of concern I can see for the Bills, as I mentioned before, the running game. Zach Moss never played better against Kansas City. Devin Singletary ran well, but, uh, you know, they've struggled. they struggled against Kansas City. They only had... Uh, 62 yards on 17 carries combined. Now, the Bills had 121 yards rushing. 59 of them came on Allen on runs by uh, Josh Allen. And before we sit there and talk about, oh, 121 yards is pretty good, Kansas City came into the game allowing the second most rushing yards per game in the NFL at 146. So not only can they be passed on easily, <laughs> they can also be rushed on easily. So, taking a look, Bill fans, can I get a soul clap? On my speaking about what's happening with the Buffalo Bills, my assertions concerning the Buffalo Bills, where they're going. Kansas City, I'll get to you in a second. But um, I think as of right now, um, I think Buffalo is the best team, especially in the AFC. Arizona, I don't know if they're really getting the respect that they deserve, still being undefeated. I mean, they're that team with Cliff Kingsbury and the short little guy named Kyler Murray. You're still going to, uh, Wendell, you're still going to be confident to say that they're better than Tom Brady. Do you see what the Buccaneers and Brady did against the uh, Miami Dolphins the other day? A Miami Dolphins defense that you said was good enough to be playoff worthy and Brady passed for, what, five touchdown passes? All of this without Gronk in the lineup? Defense was solid. You're still going to put that Tampa Bay squad over Arizona through five games. Yes, I am. Doesn't mean that they'll be that way after week seven or week 10 or week 14. I'm not saying that, but as of week five, the body of work to me screams that Arizona should be the uh, number one ranked squad as far as power, power rankings are concerned through five games. 
Where do you put Buffalo in Tampa Bay, Wendell? Hmm. Good one. I don't want to be a uh, guy who's, you know, caught up in the moment, caught up in the present in terms of, wow, man, they did a number on, uh, you know, Buffalo did a number on Kansas uh, Kansas City. So, man, we got to put them at the top or this, that, and the other. What happens if they look mediocre against Tennessee? What will happen then? I, I'm not, I'm not going to be doing the, you know, from week to week based on the they play. This week they're number one. This week they're number three. This week they're number two. This week they're number four. This week they're number back up to number one. I'm not going to be doing that bullshit. I'm just not. I'm, I'm not going to be going on a week to week basis unless they just, you know, completely lay an egg a couple of times. So, I don't know, man. It's like Arizona number one. We'll go ahead with Tampa. We'll go ahead with Buffalo. We'll go ahead with the Chargers. We'll go ahead and all that kind of stuff. But if you're Kansas City, does that really matter in a week five? Does it? Does it? I'll go ahead and give you my thoughts and opinions right that at, about those comments that I just made after I go ahead and uh, get down with a little bad boys for life. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. What if there's somebody out there who is listening who knows French? Am I pronouncing it right? Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Good morning, good afternoon. My name is Wendell Wallace. How you doing? My name is Wendell Wallace. You're listening to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm listening to Wendell's World of Sports. That's English. But je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. My name is Wendell Wallace. <laughs> I used to have, when I graduated high school, or when I was in high school, and they finally kicked me out because they got tired of my stupid ass, uh, there used to be a French teacher at the school that I went to. And my mom was a well-renowned French teacher in the uh, Montgomery County School District. She worked her way up to uh, being a, from being a regular teacher to being the head department chair, you know, head of that, uh, uh, head of that shit. And then she uh, moved up to being an assistant principal at a high school for a year. So my mom was awesome. And, uh, you know, I used to take French just to get an easy grade. Here I am. My mom's an awesome French teacher. And I couldn't even get an A in that class. That's how stupid I was. I got a B instead of an A with my mom being a French teacher. That's how lazy and pathetic and stupid I was back in high school. I really hadn't gotten too much better since. But uh, so uh, there was this teacher who would always, I guess she knew who my mom was, so she knew who I was. So every time I walked down the hallways, it would be like, Bonjour, Monsieur Wallace. Bonjour, bonjour. I'm like, oh, yeah. Bonjour, mademoiselle. Comment allez-vous? Comment allez-vous? Très bien, merci. Et vous-même? Yeah, like, eh, okay. I mean, here I am trying to talk to, uh, you know, here I am walking down the hallways. I'm trying to talk to Emily Baldwin. I'm trying to talk to, uh, um, you know, Josette Dario. I'm trying to talk to Monica Spann. I'm trying to talk to uh, Joelle Myers, you know, trying to get my Mac on. As stupid as that, as, as little to no chance I had of getting those 
very attractive females, and they're probably still attractive still as we move forward on our in our years. Graduating class of 1987, John F. Kennedy High School produced some of the most beautiful and attractive women that uh, any graduating class would ever want to have, not just 1987, but 1986 between Michelle Wills and, and, and that group. Man, Nikki Black and that group. Good Lord have mercy. I, uh, man, what was I doing in a... What was I doing in a feel the beautiful women like that of course you know me being me i had no shot but you know i was at least stupid enough and blind enough to give it a shot got laughed out of the building of course but here i was you know like this 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 lady talking to me in french you know as i'm walking down the hallways i was so stupid that yeah that's that's the reason why that's the reason why joel Myers doesn't want to date me of course this French teacher is embarrassing me by saying, Bonjour, Monsieur Wallace, bonjour. Like, I want to run home and say, Hey, Mom, there's this French teacher at Kennedy you should take a look at. She's awesome. <laughs> bonjour, bonjour, Monsieur Wallace. I mean, man, it'd be like, you know, real loud, too, you know. Come on, Telly-Vous. You know, I had to respond, right? Trivia MSC, you remember? Like, oh, my gosh, get me out of here. Wendell's World of Sport. But then again, you're like, yeah, that's, that's the reason why Monica Spann's not dating me. Of course, yeah. If that wasn't for that lady, they'd be all over me. Yeah. <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening in the NFL, speaking about what's going down in week five, speaking about the Kansas City football team. They're now two and three. Was Kansas City's worst loss at home since they since Andy Reid took over before the 2013 season? And it was more than just a score. Um, the defense... Is, you know, people are going to sit there and say the defense is terrible. They're the main reason why the team is floundering so far this season. And yeah, there's ample evidence to show that, yeah, the Achilles heel without question is the defense. When you're speaking about entering week five, the defense allowing the most points and the most yards per drive in the league and against Buffalo on Sunday night, the defense again showed why uh, there should be major concern for Kansas City, you know, trying to get back to the level that it was for the past uh, three years, when you take a look at the Bills game and at halftime, Buffalo led 24-13. Okay, Buffalo ran 24 plays. They had 289 total yards in those total plays. And that's just halftime. Josh Allen averaged 31 yards per completion in the first half on seven completions. I mean, that looked like an IMG football squad going up against a JV squad from Pensacola. Maybe not that bad, but you get my drift. The offense, it, but but you know what? Everyone's going to sit there, and, and true, true. Kansas City fans, let me bring you back in. Come on, have a seat. Have a seat for me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Class has begun. This day we're going to be discussing the Kansas City football team, two and three. What's going to be, what's going on with these guys? I just mentioned the fact that the defense has been terrible, terrible, throwing out some numbers to give evidence on how bad the defense is, but Come on, can I get some hands in the air to be talking about the offense? Because right now, Kansas City offense has been woefully underperforming. And I hate to say it, but Patrick Mahomes has not been good the last uh, the three of the last four games. He was good against Philadelphia. whoop de damn do when you're speaking about Philadelphia. But against the Chargers, he was outplayed by Justin Herbert. Um, he was outplayed mightily by Josh Allen. And he was outplayed against Lamar Jackson. Now, now... Before y'all start calling me names and going off on me, I'm not saying that uh, 
I would still go with Patrick Mahomes if you ask me, you know, to select the quarterback to uh, go forward, not just for this season, but for the next couple of seasons ahead. I'm not going to pick Herbert. I'm not going to pick Allen. I'm not going to pick Trevor Lawrence. I'm not going to be picking any of those guys. My guy, in terms of, uh, you know, a football player to lead a squad is still going to be Patrick Mahomes. But the team around him doesn't have the advantage of Mahomes being average. I mean, Mahomes, because of how poorly the defense have been playing and the fact that I think they need a, a, another receiver to help him out, I think that, you know, he's targeting a lot of um, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. I think Tyreek Hill is a guy, take the top off the defense, that type of thing. If you're going to start using Tyreek Hill in, you know, possessions where he's going to be a possession receiver, I don't think that you're going to be using Tyreek Hill to the best of his ability. I mean, the loss of Sammy Watkins, I think, from that squad has hurt Kansas City moving forward so far this season. And with the acquisition of Josh Gordon, that almost shows a sense of desperation that you're going to take a guy with drug problems who have been, who's been on the uh, street for a couple of years or a year or so because of the suspension. And he's supposed to be the elixir that uh, helps solve the problem of your, of your offense so far. It just seems like they're, they're, they're in, a, in, a, in a rut. Seems like Mahomes is not fully trusting what he sees in front of him or he's not having full faith in the offensive line. I don't know what it is. He, he seems a little skittish. He seems to be breaking pocket. He seems to be, you know, breaking out of the pocket more than he has before. I don't know if he's still traumatized from the beatdown that he received in the Super Bowls. And while the offensive line is continuing to gel and gain chemistry and have a working relationship of protecting Mahomes, maybe he's not fully trusting the offensive line just yet, but he just seems skittish in the uh, pocket and is showing. Um, against Buffalo, just one of Mahomes' 33 completion, completions went for more than 20 yards, and there were a couple of times where the offensive line did play well enough to give Mahomes five, six, seven seconds to uh, throw the ball. And as he was dancing around in the pocket like he's part of the Nicholas brothers, trying to find someone to get open or trying to find a um, receiver to uh, pass the ball to. And a couple of times, he just had to throw it out of bounds. After, I remember one instance, I don't know exactly what half it was, maybe it was the first half or something like that, where he was bouncing around and dancing around and doing the moonwalk and then doing the James Brown and, and all those type of things in the backfield. And he finally moved to the uh, right side and he couldn't find anybody and he just threw it out of bounds. Again, mainly because of the coverage that the Bills were in you know, we're implementing against Kansas City, but still, it was just, it was just surprising to see, I don't know, you want to use the word befuddled, guys? To see what Patrick Mahomes was kind of dealing with? It's It was just interesting. Mahomes threw two more interceptions against uh, Buffalo on Sunday. Now he has six this season, which is as many as he had in 2020. The second of Mahomes' two interceptions, okay, off a short pass that deflected off the hill, off, I mean, off the hands of Tyreek Hill and was returned uh, for a touchdown, 26 yards by Mika Hyde to uh, extend Buffalo's lead to 31-13. All right, all right. And then he lost a fumble late in the game in the fourth quarter. He bobbled a shotgun snap, which was right to him for the most part. He should have handled it. And um, Kansas City was in striking range. I, I don't know exactly. That, that was the final nail in the coffin. It would have taken them a home's miracle and a, you know, a Buffalo-sized collapse. How big is a Buffalo-sized collapse? I don't know. But it would have taken a, a collapse from Buffalo for 
Kansas City. Would have taken an Indianapolis Colts against the Baltimore Ravens in the fourth quarter type of collapse for the um, Kansas City football team to come back and win that game when Mahomes fumbled. But still, it was just, to see Mahomes frustrated like this so many times. You saw frustration against the Chargers. You saw frustration on Sunday night against the Bills. It is just surprising. It's just interesting. You know, now now I'm not going to go ahead, you know, because now the storyline coming out of this is Buffalo got revenge over Kansas City. What? <laughs> not even close, man. Not even close. I mean, you want to have the Bills get revenge on Kansas City? Have them do what they did on Sunday. Have Buffalo do what they did against Kansas City on Sunday for the AFC Championship game. Now, if the Bills play like that and they win and they knock Kansas City out of the playoffs and they go to the Super Bowl because they just won the AFC Championship, then they got their revenge. But who gives a flying flip about a Week 5 victory? It's nice. It's a good gauge. Gets Buffalo some confidence. It lets them know that they can win, especially on the road. And if they can get home field advantage because of the schedule that they have and the division that they play in, then they can go into an AFC Championship game against Kansas City, and this time it's going to be in front of the Buffalonians on their home field when we've already, you know, punished them on the road. Yeah, from a confidence standpoint, it's right there, but, I mean, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Buffalo, and, you know, kudos to Josh Allen and the rest of those guys who are sitting there going, like, you know, well, this this is a regular season game. There's like 13, 12 more games to go after this. This is... This has no revenge factor. There's no, yeah, we got you factor. None of this nonsense like that. Showing signs of maturity in uh, in that answer. Yeah, so for the Buffalo Bills fans who want to, yeah, that's right, I'm going to say it, dance in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dance on the ceiling like Lionel Richie because you beat Kansas City in week five. Can we calm down a little bit, please? It really doesn't mean nothing. It means that as of week five, October when did they play? October 10th or whenever? Yeah, Kansas City or Buffalo might be the best team, but that's October 10th. What are we going to be talking about in January? It might be a whole different situation. So, hey, there you go. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Josh Allen mentioned before he made the statement, didn't he? In the game against KC on who the best quarterback is right now, right now, right now, right now, right now, right now in MVP. Against uh, the uh, football team from KC, burned the worst-ranked defense in the league for 315 yards, three TD passes, no picks, season-high efficiency rating of 139.1. He also led his team in rushing with 59 yards. He did a Lamar Jackson, which included a nine-yard touchdown run. Man, special dedication going out to uh, Allen, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, making their cases for Best envy, uh, best quarterback in the league, Kyler Murray. I still think is the leader through five weeks, just because he wasn't as dynamic, or just the, just because the numbers weren't as eye popping, or the impact of the game wasn't as spectacular as a Herbert and his comeback win over Cleveland and Jackson and his one man show and comeback against Indianapolis and Josh Allen and his performance against the defending AFC championship because Kyler Murray did this little thing against the. San Francisco 49ers with Trey Lance at their starting quarterback, A, they won, and B, Murray is still the guy through five weeks, through five weeks, through five weeks, through five weeks. Mentioned before here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with George Truly, Wendell Wallace, Lamar, 
Lamar, Lamar, Lamar, 504 total yards. The Ravens had 523 as a team. <laughs> wow. Jackson, I thought that he was nothing more than a runner. Who said that? Oh, that was me. Sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of. I said that he needs to, while he's improving, I said that a guy is never going to be Tom Brady in terms of, uh, you know, stepping back there and, you know, being that type of quarterback, being the Drew Brees type of quarterback. So I was just kind of thinking about, well, you know, thinking down the road, if Lamar reaches his early to mid-30s and that spectacular athleticism starts to wane, what is he going to fall back on? You can almost say that uh, as far as Lamar Jackson is concerned, he's almost like the um, Russell Westbrook, shall we say, of quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of his athleticism is off the charts from a quarterback position. We've never seen anything like this, just like from a point guard position in the NBA. We've never had a super freak of an athlete like Russell Westbrook. But because Russell Westbrook was a was a super freak, he's super freaking yow. The fact that, okay, he's not, as, you take away his athleticism. Okay, what does he got? I mean, he's not a great shooter. He's not a great defender. So when his athleticism starts to wane, what is he going to fall back on? Steph Curry could probably, probably play basketball till he's 50 because he's always going to have that shot. Facetious with the word, with the, with the age of 50. But what I'm saying is, Steph Curry doesn't rely on athleticism for him to be great. Luka Doncic doesn't rely on athleticism for him to be great. What's going to happen with Russell Westbrook begins to age, and we've seen examples of that. Now, we've seen stretches in the recent uh, years where Russell Westbrook is still spectacular. That athleticism is still there, but he doesn't have the same explosiveness that he did in his younger days when he was doing his thing with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Translating that back to the NFL Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson, the stuff that we see him doing now within the pocket, the jukes, the jives, the um, the, the athleticism, the running, the making the people miss, the, the new age Michael Vick, the new age Randall Cunningham, um, that type of new age Steve Young in terms of being able to uh, use their athleticism to make some things done, to, you know, positive impact using their legs. Well, Lamar Jackson's not going to be able to do that when he's 32. The Lamar Jackson we're seeing now is not going to be the same Lamar Jackson when he's 23. Is he going to be able to be that pocket quarterback, or is he able going to be to is he going to be able to mature enough as a quarterback to where he can be a quarterback to where he can throw the football 40 to 45 times and still be effective? You know, something like Donovan McNabb ultimately had to do when, you know, he got tired of the moniker of black quarterback, all he can do is run, all he can do is run. Well, Donovan McNabb turned into a damn near pretty good near Hall of Famer quarterback based on his quarterback play, not just because of his superior athleticism to use his legs to uh, impact a game that way. Well, Jackson, as we continue to see him evolve as a quarterback, and he's still got a lot of years left to get to that level. Tom Brady is 44 fucking years old, and... um 32, 33, 34 Tom Brady. So Tom Brady definitely was not the Tom Brady that we know of when he was 23, 24, Lamar Jackson's age. So Jackson continues to grow. Jackson continues to mature as a more complete pocket quarterback, a dual threat quarterback who can also kill you from the pocket as well as um, running the football. 37 of 43, 442 yards for a touchdown to go along with 62 yards rushing on 14 carries. For the next, for the last uh, couple of games, we haven't seen Lamar you know, go nuts. We haven't seen that 15 carry, 134 yard type of game 
that Lamar was putting up on a semi-consistent basis early on in his career. I mean, we saw the game against Detroit. He was uh, held in check in terms of rushing is concerned. He's not breaking off uh, 40 and 50-yard runs now. But what he did against Indianapolis, and you can talk about the Colts being decimated because of injuries. I don't give a damn. 37 to 42 for 43, 442 yards. And, and, and guess what? He doesn't have the receiving core that a Justin Herbert has. He doesn't have the receiving core that a Baker Mayfield has. He doesn't have the receiving core as a Tampa Tom Brady has. You know, no disrespect to Hollywood Brown, and I think Mark Andrews is one of the more underrated tight ends in the game. Everybody talks about Kittle and and uh, Kelsey. I think Mark Andrews is right up there with those guys as being an outstanding tight end. But um, you know, he doesn't have he doesn't have the the um, weapons that Patrick that even now Patrick Mahomes has. Lamar doesn't have a Tyreek Hill. Lamar doesn't have a Devontae Adams. Lamar doesn't have a, a Michael Thomas from a few years ago with the New Orleans Saints. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't have those. He doesn't have those things. So, you know, as he's working through this, he's also uh, doing it without a uh, go-to receiver. But, uh, you know, Baltimore outscored Indy 22-3 to in the fourth quarter in overtime. Jackson being responsible for all the scores. He was tremendous. He was, he was awesome. He was awesome. And kudos to that guy for, again, showing his maturity and growth as a pocket quarterback 43 times I've said before you know if Baltimore right now has to rely on Lamar Jackson to pass the ball 40 to 45 times that's a problem well at least for one game it wasn't a problem let's see if that trend if uh, that trend can continue if you're a Baltimore Ravens fan Wendell's World of Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us Justin Herbert against Cleveland 26-43 400 yards passing almost, 398, four touchdowns, ran for a TV, TD, <coughs> while I was watching it on TV, but I wasn't getting a, I wasn't getting a shot for TB, so there you go, okay, enough of that joke, brought them back, speaking of Herbert, down from 27-13 in the third, through two touchdown passes, ran for one in the comeback, Good, man, there's been some good quarterback play so far, man. You take a look at Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, Matthew Stafford, Kyler Murray, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, um, Josh Allen. It's looking like uh, we're going to be having a really, really, really good season for uh, quarterback play this year. And I, I think that uh, you take a look at a Mac Jones. I think he's going to continue to be steady and improve. I think that uh, despite the dysfunction that's surrounding him, I think Trevor Lawrence it's going to have some games which make people, which are going to have Jacksonville fans really excited because I think that he's going to be, I think he's going to show a couple of games where it's like, man, in a couple of years when they uh, sweep out Urban Meyer and that bullshit and bring in like a competent NFL staff, Eric Bieniemy, and you know really give Trevor Lawrence some uh, guidance and some um, ideas on how to play football at the NFL level. That kid is going to be right up there with the. Allens and the Herberts and the Murrays and everybody else. If we're speaking about 2023, 2024, maybe even sooner than that. Again, once we remove the stench, which is uh, the Jacksonville's coaching staff and head coach at the uh, top, and we bring in a competent staff, <clears throat> Eric Bieniemy, I think Justin, I think um, Trevor Lawrence is going to be very quickly in the next couple of years a top six, seven quarterback. And you still have. Russell Wilson, even though he's out six to eight weeks with a um, middle finger 
injury. I think that um, he's still going to be potent. Uh, just a lot of really good quarterbacks. A really a lot of good quarterback play so far. Brady, Prescott, Stafford, Murray, Herbert, Allen, Jackson. It's just an exciting time to watch football from a quarterback standpoint. So kudos to those guys. Kansas City moving forward. I don't want to veer too much off the uh, Kansas City Expressway on this one. Speaking about the football team, I, I, I think ultimately they'll be fine. I think Kansas City right now, and, and maybe it's fool's gold. Maybe it's something where we're overrating. But I think it's a situation where, hey, look, man, they're in a division where, okay, yeah, no question about it. The Los Angeles Chargers are legit. But how much do you believe in the Denver Broncos? How much do you believe now in the Las Vegas Raiders? It's a whole lot of get well games. I mean, Kansas City plays Washington next week. Washington has been the perfect team for for squads and franchises looking to turn things around, see Buffalo, see New Orleans. So here, here's an opportunity for Kansas City to uh, right the ship and, and, and get a little confident and get some of their mojo and some of their groove back by going up a going up against a perceived elite front four or a very good front four. Of course, Washington secondary is toast and trash. But um, so it's a situation where, look, man, you, you, you know if you got a brain in your head, you're not giving up on Patrick Mahomes. That's just silly. That's just stupid to go ahead and do that. You, you really are going to throw in the towel in terms of um, Kansas City being elite when you have Mahomes at the quarterback, Kelsey at the wide receiver, a tight end position, excuse me, Tyreek Hill at the wide receiving position, and Andy Reid as a coach, along with Eric Bieniemy as the offensive coordinator. Does the defense scare you? Fuck yeah, it scares me. If you're a Kansas City fan, could that be one of the reasons, main reasons why Kansas City doesn't repeat as AFC champions? And maybe for one season, the tide may turn to a team like Buffalo. Sure, absolutely. I'm more confident in Kansas City on offense turning it around. I don't see any way that the Kansas City defense can get remarkably better. Maybe to the point where, look, sorry, Patrick, this is you're just going to have to see old films of the 1980 San Diego Chargers where their offense was off the charts, but they had to be off the charts because their defense stunk. So, you know, you can play you can play uh, Dan Fouts, Kelsey can play Kellen Winslow, and um, Hill can play, I don't know, John Jefferson or, I don't know, who else with the West, West Chandler or some, or some shit like that. Unfortunately, we don't have a Chuck Muncie in the, back, in the backfield, but uh, you get my drift. But I'm still not giving up on the best quarterback. I still believe in the league right now, Patrick Mahomes, when everything is all said and done. So NFL talk is now put to bed for week five. Hey, man, in college football, it was nuts. It was off the charts. It was incredible. It was chaotic. It was something that we're going to be talking about after I get down and booger. Yeah. Some Remy Martin, some good ass cigars. Check it out. Hey yo, midnight candlelight fiend with diesel in his needle. Queensbridge leader, no equal. I come from the will of Ezekiel to pop thousand dollar bottles of sky, smoke pot, and heal a people. Any rebuttal to what a other good boss cut and count how many bad honeys I slutted to high number. Name a nigga under the same sky that I'm under. Who gets money remain fly? Yeah, I wonder. Eyes flutter as love when eyes pops up. Stars get starstruck. Panties start dripping the waves of Carlito. Blaze, torpedo cigars, drop rolls, hoes, drop clothes. Louis the 13 freaks. Women nice size. I ride the cautious, thick, brown, and gorgeous. It ain't my fault. Semi-automatic. 
weapons I brought the world crazy. I'm rich and I'm girl crazy. Think I'm convinced them all to praise me. The ideology is confusion. I lose them. Felace me. You hate me. My gun off safety. Since a tunnel escape, keep my... Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Crazy weekend in college football, man. Just absolutely crazy. For those who love college football, for those who just can't get enough of college football, this past a Saturday, this was... This was it was all about this, man. This is what they were talking about. When people say this is the reason why I love college football, yeah, I can understand because it was absolutely crazy. And my most dominant team, the most dominant team in more North American sports, the Alabama Crimson Tide, the tide has fallen. The tide has come in for the first time in nineteen games. Alabama tasted defeat losing to Texas A and M forty one to thirty eight. Alabama Hasn't lost a game since falling 48-45 to to Auburn on November 30th, 2019. So, uh, what's the takeaway from this, man? What are we going to be taking away from this this past Saturday? I only got 15 minutes, so I'm not going to, uh, you know, belabor the point. Let's just say that for the second time this season, the first one coming against Florida, that Alabama looked like a team that lost both of its star players from an unbelievable championship-winning team. And we're playing young, inexperienced players in a hostile environment. Youth, inexperience, lack of collegiate big game experience. That's what played a role, played a major role in what happened against Alabama on Saturday. We kind of brushed it off, or at least I brushed it off. The um, game against Florida was like, ah, yeah, you know, I mean, Alabama was kind of lackadaisical and it was a good wake-up call from them and Florida's ranked in the top 10 and they were playing in a, um, you know, at the swamp and, you know, pretty hostile environments. And this was the first time, truly the first time that Bryce Young and these guys had to uh, go on the road and face something like this. And surprise, surprise, that the defense wasn't as great as we thought it was going to be historically great under Nick Saban at this time at Alabama. But, you know, this is Nick Saban and this is Alabama and these guys are just too talented. And as the season goes on, they'll get better and the defense will correct itself and the offense will only get better and all of these things. And we just kind of brushed it off again. I'm sorry. I just kind of brushed it off. And even in the game against Texas A&M, it was a situation where even though Texas A&M got out to a nice lead and it looked like they were going to be able to stay and play with Alabama just because of how porous the defense was and how the um, defense for A&M was getting to Bryce Young, it was a situation where it was like, yeah, yeah, you know. But, I mean, again, Alabama will come back and find a way. But offensively and defensively, they collapsed in the fourth quarter. Alabama had scored 21 straight points, take a 38-31 lead, and you're thinking, you're thinking, okay, five minutes to go, okay. You know, this is a situation where Texas A&M is playing some guy, some backup guy named Zach Calzada. <laughs> I mean, you know, Nick Saban is going to lose to some freshman backup quarterback named Zach Calzada? I don't think so. Well, oops, I'm sorry. The defense for Alabama, 41 points to Texas A&M, 41 points. This is a team in Texas A&M that scored 10 points against Colorado, 10 points against Arkansas, 22 points against Mississippi State, and you're scoring 41? You're quadrupling the number of points you scored against Colorado and Arkansas against mighty Alabama full of five-star recruits, full of future first-round draft picks on defense? A team that came into, the unit that came into the season was supposed to be Nick Saban's 
you know, better defenses. The one after they uh, beat up De'Ara King and embarrassed Miami. The one that was like, oh, shit. Miami and, the, uh, you know, Alabama and their defense. This, that, and the other. This, that, and the other. Shit. Sure didn't look like that against Texas A&M. Atrocious. Atrocious, atrocious. You couldn't hold on to a 38 the 31 lead with five minutes to go. I text a couple of my homeboys when Texas A&M tied the game up at 38. I was like, okay, don't worry about that. Oh, you know, Alabama's going to win on a field goal because there's just no way Bryce Young and the guys with the momentum that they have and everything are going to uh, <clears throat> are going to uh, give up the football without scoring at the end or near the end of the game or near the end of the game enough to where Texas A&M isn't going to Oh, shit, second down and 10. Well, like I said before, you know, they'll be able... Oh, a drop pass? Really? Shit. Well, don't worry about it. Alabama will come back. You got Bryce Young, and he'll be able to make the play in... Oh, damn, third down and 10. Hmm. Well, you know, third down and 10, that's fine. You got John Michi, the third out there, and, you know, you got a really good squad, and the offensive line will... Oh, shit, fourth down, and they got a punt. I'm sorry. Let me uh, correct my... Let let me me correct uh, what I was saying. Alabama's not going to win this game 41 to 38. Texas A&M is going to win this game 41 to 38 because unlike Alabama who couldn't um get a first down Texas A&M is going to do more than that. And Zach Calzada 31 or excuse me 21 to 31 passing 285 yards and three touchdowns an interception but made a huge scramble on A&M's final drive. Hey man, when you got seven new players on defense it's not as uh, we were foolish, or I was foolish enough to think that, yeah, seven new players, big deal, because it's Nick Saban and it's because it's Alabama. Nick Saban hasn't been the Nick Saban of defense since his LSU days. And the way college football is going right now, that Nick Saban who was coaching at Michigan State, that Nick Saban who was coaching at LSU, that's not the same Nick Saban that's coaching at Alabama to where he's just going to try to uh, navigate 17 to 14 wins. He hasn't been that way for years. So I think Saban has finally, not finally, because he's been doing it for years in terms of, look, you know what? Offense wins championships. Let's just have a defense that's good enough not to be so bad that uh, it can hamper or it can uh, cost us a championship because of the great offense that I had. What was the last time before this run of quarterbacks for Nick Saban? What was the last time Nick Saban put a quarterback in the NFL before this run of... Jalen Hurts and Tua and Mac Jones and such. When when was the last time Nick Saban had a first-round draft pick of a quarterback before this recent run? You know, that's the Nick Saban that many people are thinking about when they say, I can't believe how bad uh, Alabama is on defense. Alabama hasn't been the Alabama that we all know and love in terms of Nick Saban turning them into a defensive juggernaut for a while, for a long while. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, Lane Kiffin, how many points has he been putting up against Saban? Now, he only put up 21 this uh, this year, but, but what was it last year? He put up like 49 or something nonsense like that? And we're speaking about Mississippi? So may, maybe we shouldn't be too shocked about what happened on, sun, on Saturday night down at College Station. Yes, backup quarterback starting. Yes, there was no evidence that a&M was going to have this type of offensive explosion, but man, it's uh, it was still surprising the fact that Alabama wasn't able to close the uh, door. But then after stepping back and taking a further look, you take a look at all the young players, first time in terms of, you know, going through the 
um, grind of a SEC schedule and all that type of stuff, maybe this was something that we should have anticipated, not just say, well, because it's Alabama, they're five-star recruits, and Nick Saban is Nick Saban, that this will be worked out by, I don't know, they'll start working on it by uh, 10, 14 a.m., and everything will be situated and fine by 10, 20. So, you know, the same day, so... Here's what Nick Saban had to say after the Texas A&M loss. Obviously, this is a very disappointing loss uh, for us. I know the players are very disappointed. Um, But I think that um, everybody needs to remember how they feel uh, and not forget it. Um, Because when I talk about having respect for winning, um, that's what I mean. You want to avoid the feeling that you have when you lose. So... um, a lot of lessons to be learned out there tonight. Um, Got to give Texas A&M a lot of credit for how they played. They had a good plan. The players did a good job of executing it. Um, we certainly moved the ball well enough on offense, uh, yardage-wise. Uh, but they stopped us in the red zone. Uh, we turned the ball over on the two-yard line with an opportunity to score. We actually went ahead in the game at the end of the game. Couldn't get the stops on defense we needed to and had the ball. Uh, with three minutes to go in the game, could have gone two minutes, went down the field, and had a chance to kick a field goal, win it ourselves. And then, you know, we didn't stop them. So um, they made the plays that they needed to make to win the game. Uh, we didn't make the plays we needed to make to win the game. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll learn a lot from this. And, you know, we still can accomplish everything we want to accomplish um, in terms of, um, but we got to do things better than we did tonight. We got to play better. We got to be more consistent. We got to finish drives. We got to get more turnovers on defense. We got to get more stops on defense. There's a lot of things we need to fix. So, from the audio, everyone needs to remember how they feel in terms of the loss and not forget it. Respect winning and learn from the lessons that caused them to lose and not forget it. Talk about, he talked about the miscues and missed opportunities to uh, win the game and still threw in there that he can still, you know, they can still accomplish everything that they want to accomplish, i.e. getting into the playoffs. He didn't say that, but, you know, that's what he was thinking. He just thought about, should I say that? Nah, I should keep that in my holster and use it when I need to. I'm not, you know, we're only in the week six. I don't need to use that just yet. I don't need to start politicking just yet. You know, they say that Nick Saban uses the media when he wants to get a message out to his team. Um, that was a message I thought was learning how to win. Just telling his team, man, this is a process. You got to learn how to win. I don't give a damn what you did in high school. I don't give a damn what numbers you put up in high school. I don't give a damn how many girls you banged because you were the HNIC on campus. I don't give a damn, you know, how many five stars you had. I don't get, I don't care. This is a whole new level. I don't give a damn how many home folks and home girls and homeboys and family members are talking about you'll just go to Alabama for three years and then you'll be a number one draft pick. It's, it's not that easy. It's not that way. You know, you got to learn how to win. And these are steps along with the wins come to losses. You have to take these losses and learn from them and get better from them. You know, and because of the talent, not just talent, but the experience that he had the last couple of seasons, he never needed needed to do that shit. You know, Mac Jones knew what it was all about. Jaden Waddle knew what it was all about. Henry Ruggs knew what it was all about. Alex Leatherwood knew what it was all about. Dylan Moses knew what it was all about. You know, there were at a point in time when Alabama was becoming super dominant that we've been through these wars. I don't like to use the term war. Football's not a war. We've been through these tough games. You know, we don't, we don't need any 
Like we, we know how tough it is to win. We know how prepared we have to be. We know that we have to be consistent in terms of our effort and our focus and our passion to absolutely fucking destroy the other team. We know that. And you take a look at this Alabama team right now. Who are the leaders? Who are the leaders on the team that is going to relay that message? Who are going to get that message across? The coach can talk about that. Nick Saban can talk about that. The Seven Rings can talk about that. His reputation can talk about that. Doug Marone can talk about that. Bill O'Brien can talk about that. Everybody can talk about that as far as an adult is concerned. But as far as your peers are concerned on that football team, who's going to be the one that's going to sit there and say, hey, man, those boys ain't bullshitting. That man ain't bullshitting. Because let me tell you, I've been here three to four years, and I've been through this, and I've been through that. They ain't bullshitting. So if we continue to bullshit and we continue not to take things seriously and we just, you know, continue to uh, listen and talk to uh, people who tell us how great they are and trying to see how much money we can make from NIL, we're going to be losing again. We're going to be having the same feeling again. Do y'all want the same feeling again? Who are the leaders, who are the veteran leaders on that team that can go ahead and relay that message? Is it offensive lineman Chris Owens, who's returning for a sixth year? He's been through a lot of the uh, tough competition throughout Alabama. He knows the routine. He knows the philosophy. He knows the deal. Offensive lineman Evan Neal entering his third season after starting each of the last uh, 26 games at both guard and tackle. He had the experience to go ahead. Brian Robinson, the Tide's most experienced running back on the 2021 roster, who's a senior. Um, for the defense, LeBron, LeBron Ray, Tristan Harris, Christopher Allen. Who? Who's going to be there? Who's going to be that guy who's going to get up in people's faces when they start taking the foot off the throat of a team that's ready to be finished because it's like, okay, we can just coast. They were up against Florida 21-3 to at the end of the first quarter before being outplayed the rest of the game and holding on the win. They were up 42-7 to with five minutes to play against Mississippi before allowing two late scores. They got saved in a foul humor. And then against Texas A&M, again, they dropped eight passes, committed eight penalties for 82 yards, fumbled in their own end zone or through an interception in the end zone, fumbled in their own end zone. So who's going to be the guy to be like, look, man, you know, this is some bullshit that just needs to stop and it needs to stop now. Because if you look at the schedule and you look at the fact that it's Alabama, all they have to do is continue to win their games and they're going to be in the uh, college football playoffs. Even if they, uh, well, with two losses, if they lose to uh, Georgia in the championship game, oh, gee, that would be a little bit tough, especially if Cincinnati's going to be um, undefeated. We don't know about Oklahoma. We don't know about Iowa. Ohio State has been surging. We don't know about Michigan. Mm, it's going to be a little dicey, but you know, basically the basically their their destiny is in their hands in terms of saying, "Look, man, if we win our games, including the SEC championship, we're in the playoffs." So it's right there for us. Are we going to have the maturity? Are we going to grow? Are we going to uh, be able to go ahead and do that? So I still think Alabama is the most dominant team in team sports in North America. When you're speaking about their they won 100 consecutive games against unranked opponents dating back to 2007 when they lost to Louisiana Monroe 21-14. You take a look at Texas A&M. They're not your average, everyday, non-ranked, non-ranked opponent. So, you know, there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Very quickly, Oklahoma comes back for a victory over Texas and gets a new starting quarterback in the process. I'll probably talk about this a little bit later on on my next podcast, but that was a hell of a game. And the only question is, where is Spencer Rattler going to uh, transfer after this season? And when is um, when is um, um, uh, Lincoln Riley going to name Caleb Williams as starting quarterback for real? danced around it like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Come on, man, you know you know what's going on. So you got that situation, Oklahoma, your big, 
a typical Big 12 game in the Red River rivalry. Lots of offense, big plays, but very little resistance from each team's defense. Combined for over 1,100 yards, 700 yards passing, 45 first downs. Oklahoma rushed for 340 yards, average 8 yards per carry. Yikes! <laughs> I mean, the game included 75-yard touchdown pass, 14 seconds into the game. Texas scores on the 48-yard pass near the end of the first quarter. Williams, uh, Caleb Williams scores on a 66-yard run on the fourth and short. The first time he gets in, Marvin Mims, 52-yard TD pass to tie the game at 41. And then Kennedy Brooks, 33-yard TD run at the buzzer to win the game. Hello, welcome to Big 12 football. So it'll be interesting to uh, see exactly where that goes. And is Caleb Williams really going to be that guy? Does Caleb Williams, he deserves to be the starter, but is he still, is he experienced enough to get Oklahoma to where they want to go. And again, Spencer Rattler. Well, I mean, overrated, shall we say, if we're speaking about him being a uh, NFL prospect and a Heisman Trophy uh, leading candidate? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Did you see the post-game press conference where Riley was talking about, he felt he thought about reinserting Rattler in a, with the game tied at 48 with a minute 23 left? That's testing some loyalty right there, man. I mean, you're speaking about Norman, Oklahoma. He puts in Rattler and they lose that game. Yikes, man. <laughs> that's, uh, that's ballsy to even say some shit like that. He, well, probably he could say that when the team won. If he lost, I don't think he would say some shit like that. Uh, where's Rattler going to transfer to? Losing his job to Williams. I've got Miami, Texas A&M needs a quarterback, right? Arizona, Arizona State, where he's from. Georgia, Tennessee. Maybe Josh Heupel could use a quarterback like that. Georgia, if JT Daniels can't uh, get straight with his injuries, I think Spencer Rattler could be a situation there that could work. Mississippi, Mississippi State, Mike Leach, Lane Kiffin might be able to resurrect his career. Oregon out there on the West Coast, closer to home, a budding program that right now is the best program west of the Mississippi. So there you go. And then you got Penn State over Iowa, which is not even worth mentioning, even though James Franklin, can we please kind of get ourselves a backup quarterback? Because you had that game in the bag, not Papa's brand new bag like James Brown, but you had it in the bag and, um, you know, your homeboy got hurt as far as the uh, quarterback is concerned, whose name escapes me right now. But the guy who came in was garbage. So you look at the new AP top 10 ranking, Georgia, Iowa, Cincinnati, Cincinnati. Oklahoma, Alabama, Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan coming in at number eight, Oregon, and Michigan State. Mel Tucker getting it done. So there you go, man. College football. Enough about that. Let me get into the boxing. Armando Vasquez is just right now shouting and screaming, get the boxing, get the boxing. Boise State lost. Who cares? No, Boise State beat BYU. So he's probably saying more college football, more, more Boise State talk. Do some Boise State talk. Now, Armando, I got to move on. Time for me to go ahead and educate you on the fight that happened on Saturday night. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, the best fight in years. Time for me to educate. Ding, ding. The bell has rung. Armando Vasquez, if you would please take your seat, put out your pencil and your paper because it's time for Professor Wallace, Mr. Wallace, to do a little educating on the sweet science.
final segment of the podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Please come in, have a seat. Mr. Wallace, Professor Wallace, is going to be teaching for the next 10 to 12 minutes. The student today who needs an education on what's happening in the world of boxing, Armando Vasquez from Idaho. If he would come in, have a seat, please. Thank you very much. Please have a seat at the front of the classroom. I would appreciate it. If you could leave the young ladies alone for at least 15 to 20 minutes, I would appreciate that as I go ahead. No, in fact, just give me 13 minutes of your time. You can go ahead and talk to all the beautiful young females in class that you want to. I'm just going to go ahead and try to educate you on the sweet science. Armando is a guy who believes that he is a boxing fanatic, and he is, but he just needs a little he needs a little work, that's all. He just needs a little edu- education. And what better person to help him along the way than Mr. Wallace, yours truly. So thank you very much. So let me go ahead and begin. Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Wow. <laughs> wow. That uh, that was pretty good. Thank you very much for a heavyweight fight that was uh, worth a damn. And I know I was speaking about, oh, man, you know, me you missed an opportunity to have uh, the fight of the year or the biggest fight of all, you know, in all of Britain with the heavyweight championship fight possibilities with um, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury and that went down the toilet and that was a bad blow for boxing and all this kind of stuff while I still think there are some remnants of that argument that could, that could still be valuable wow just think now about what happened on uh, Saturday between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder Fury is the baddest man on the planet and the best heavyweight in the world 31 and 0-1, 22 knockouts, finished Wilder for the second straight time in their three bouts, finishing the big man at a minute 10 in the 11th round after a chopping right hook. Fury got up for the canvas not once but twice in the fourth round and eventually stopped Wilder with a devastating right hand in the 11th round. The victory again gave Fury a 2-0-1 advantage over Wilder and proved without a shadow of a doubt he was the better fighter. It wasn't Mark Breland's fault. It wasn't the situation where the Fury's gloves were uh, compromised. It wasn't the situation where Wilder lost all of his energy because he was wearing 40 pounds of garbage going into the uh, fight in terms of the uh, ring entrance and any of that stuff. No more excuses. No more this, that, and the other. Deontay Wilder lost. Fair and square. It was the best Deontay Wilder that's ever been. Actually looked a little bit more like a fighter, like a guy who actually enjoyed the sweet science, actually learned a little bit. But uh, Tyson Fury was the better man. So some of the stuff that they came away with, both came into the fight heavier than the uh, first and second fight. Fury, 278. Wilder, 238. Wilder, well, Fury was not the same, but not in the same shape that he was in the second fight. Now, you could sit there and say, well, 20 months off between fights is going to be showing something like that. I also think that uh, Fury was not clearly as sharp or efficient that he was during the second fight. Again, that could have come with the 20 months in between the um, fights between both him and Wilder. But at the start of the fight, man, it was like, you know what? Deontay learned his lesson because remember in the second fight, Fury came sprinting almost to the center of the ring to go ahead and establish the pace, establish everything that he wanted to do, the workload, the way this was going to go. Well, for the third fight, it was Wilder who came out in the center of that ring, and he was the one that was more intent on throwing that jab, throwing punches to the body, setting a much busier pace, not being too much of the counterpuncher, not being so much of the counterpuncher that he was in the first two fights. And he had Fury moving backwards for the first time in a while, at least the first time um, since the first fight. So Fury maintained his composure, 
again, because of maybe that five extra pounds that he had didn't move as well as he did in the second fight, but he was hitting Wilder with jabs and hooks, and he would hold and grab and lean, and Wilder on the clinches trying to uh, take advantage of that 40-plus pound weight advantage that he had, and he had the basic one-two combination from uh, Fury, jab, left hook, and then he would tie him up and do a little dirty boxing and hold and uh, that type of thing. So again, two inches taller, 40 pounds heavier, wearing on the Wilder, same thing that he did. And you could tell the strategy started to work probably somewhere around round three as it looked like Deontay was starting to get a little bit tired, breathing more from the mouth than the nose. So it was definitely taking its toll, but um, Fury put Wilder down with 30 seconds to go in the third round with an overhand right and a short uppercut, uppercut as he was going down to the canvas. It was... The first of many times that Wilder looked like he was ready to be KO'd. But hey, man, give the boy some credit. He's not a boy, but he's a man. Give Wilder some credit. There were many times during this fight where it's like, oh, yeah, this shit was over. And I think that if Fury was in better shape, that he would have been able to finish him off. But I think because of the fact that he was not in the tip-top shape that he was, the ring rust that he had in between the fights, and the fact that he still had respect for that right hand from Wilder because he was touched not once but twice in terms of touching and dropping to the canvas in the fourth round, I think that he was a little bit more aware and had more respect in terms of grabbing, holding on, using a uh, game plan to say that, you know what, I might not be able to get this guy in a fourth or seventh or eighth round, but what I'm doing right now, trying to uh, mitigate some of the opportunities that Wilder has and using that right hand, so when I get close, I'm just going to go ahead, after the one-two, I'm just going to go ahead and hold him. It's kind of like what Muhammad Ali did later on in his career. You see that fight against Leon Spinks the second time? One-two hold, one-two hold, and any time Leon got close, Ali was like, nah, motherfucker, I'm going to be holding your ass up right now. I ain't letting you go. I'm going to bear hug your ass. So it was the same thing with uh, Tyson Fury in his fight against Deontay Wilder. Getting close. I don't want to be clipped by that right hand. Let me hold. Let me hold. And again, he was very patient. He was very disciplined in his strategy because clearly it was working. So after round four, Fury established his dominance in the fight. Wilder started reverting back to some of the old fighting styles that he had, the basic one-two combination, trying to throw the home run right hand. No one telegraphs the right hand like Deontay Wilder. I mean, I mean, I mean, Rocky Balboa did a better job in hiding the right hand, throwing the right hand than Deontay Wilder. I mean, it was, you know, Tommy Gunn did a better job. It was comical the way that... Uh, Deontay was trying to load up for that one right hand. I mean, you could see it a mile away, more than a mile away. But uh, just basically, you know, in the, Wilder looked like he was starting to survive more than just trying to win. He had a last gasp effort in round nine, in round 10. But in the 10th round, he went down from an overhand right. And then to end the fight, uh, Fury hit him with an uppercut and an overhand right. Goodbye. Thanks for coming. Thanks for playing. What made this a classic fight? Because, you know, everybody's talking about, oh my goodness, the trilogy between Wilder and Fury. Oh my, Armando, are you writing this stuff down? Are you paying attention? Stop looking at her. Pay attention to me. Thank you. Oh man, what happened? This is unbelievable. This is great. All right, man, let, let, let's, let's kind of calm down a little bit. What made this a quote-unquote classic fight is the fact that you had what we want to see in heavyweight we want to see in a heavyweight championship fight. This is what a heavyweight championship fight to the non-boxing fan is supposed to look like. Two of the biggest heavyweights in boxing history inside the ring, throwing everything they had at each other, trying to take each other's uh, head off in terms of taking the fight to, you know, trying to take a tremendous beating, not giving up 
while still being able to turn the fight around with one punch. That we wanted to see. We didn't see any holding. We didn't see two guys counter-punching. We just saw two guys in there trying to knock each other's blocks off. One happened to be 6'9", 278. The other one happened to be 6'7", 238. So the actual skill value and the artistry of the sweet science for this fight was very minuscule. But the ferocity, action, and excitement of the fight was off the charts. And that's what made this fight unbelievable. If you want to compare Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury III, I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to give Armando a little bit of a homework, homework assignment. Go find the fight between George Foreman and Ron Lyle. I think it was back in 1977. That was this generation's fight right there. The only difference between the fight between George Foreman and Ron Lyle and Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, the third fight, the only difference was Foreman and Lyle weren't fighting for a championship and Lyle was KO'd in the fifth round instead of uh, being KO'd later on in the 11th. But if you're going to be talking about two guys just slugging away, two guys that each time looked like they were going to be out, two fights or a fight where no one was having any defense whatsoever and it was just two big buffaloes out there throwing haymakers at each other, that was George Foreman and Ron Lyle. That was like the fight... I think that might have been the fight. No, Jimmy Young was the fight where George got knocked out or he barely won. And then, you know, he collapsed in Puerto Rico after the fight and he found religion and whatever the whatever story that he gave to all of a sudden con people into thinking that the new George Foreman was around. No, George Foreman was the old George Foreman who just found a new con to uh, get money. But um, yeah, the Fury Wilder 3 fight was this generation's George Foreman versus Ron Lyle. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Professor Wallace, Mr. Wallace, teaching the Armando Vasquez's of the world about trying to uh, break down this Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder type three. So what does this victory mean for the heavyweight division in boxing and for Fury itself? Armando, do you have the answer for that? Let me give you the answer. For the first time since Vladimir Klitschko, won the championship, his championship reign from 2003 to 2015, we actually have a dominant heavyweight champion. How about that? Klitschko era, era lasted, what, 12 years, over four, 4,300 days. Um, you know, during his career, Vladimir defeated 23 boxers for the World Heavyweight Championship, breaking the all-time record held by Joe Lewis for 67 years. Klitschko fought in 29 World Heavyweight title fights, more than any other fighter in boxing history. He's, I think Klitschko is one of the most over, uh, uh, underappreciated fighters of all time. Because everyone's talking about, yeah, fuck that, man. If Ali would have done this or, you know, because the style of Klitschko, very basic, Emmanuel Stewart, Lennox Lewis type of deal, where it's very, very basic fighting, playing to your strengths as far as the size and weight and his height is concerned, his physical attributes. Klitschko was never that guy who was going to, you know, come in there and start throwing haymakers. He was going to be very calculated. He was going to be very basic. He was going to be very disciplined. And Emmanuel Stewart, type fighter when Emmanuel Stewart took over heavyweight C. Lennox Lewis. So, you know, Vladimir also fought all of his fights in Germany. For the Germans, it was awesome. For that part of the world, it was fantastic. But because he rarely, if ever, came over to defend his title in the racist, ignorant, selfish, divided states of America, this country never got an opportunity to see him fight unless you wanted to tune in, you know, in the middle of the day to go ahead and watch him fight. And the competition that he had 
also being mainly from the European countries, also didn't allow Klitschko to have that American challenger for the American boxing audience, and even for the sports fans, to really get into a Vladimir Klitschko heavyweight championship fight. So because of that, I think that we kind of dismiss how dominant and how great Vladimir Klitschko is. And we start saying that, yeah, well, you know, he wasn't as great as Ali and everything. Name me someone in the heavyweight division who you would consider in the last 50 years as great as Muhammad Ali, motherfucker. Give me a break on that one. So because of that, you know, we kind of gloss over how great the reign of Vladimir Klitschko is. Well, for the first time since that reign was over for Klitschko, Fury is the first legitimate champion since then i don't give about i don't give a damn about the other belts i don't care about uh alexander uh, uh, usich the guy who knocked out or the guy who put away or the guy who decisioned anthony joshua the true real heavyweight champion of the world is tyson fury you better recognize so what can the sport do what can boxing do to capitalize on this why in the world let me ask you a question armando why in the flipping world is Tyson Fury, not a global superstar. And when I mean global superstar, I'm not talking about, yeah, he's bigger in the European countries than he is in this country. I'm speaking about why is he not the global superstar, the likes of Messier or, or, or Lionel Messi or LeBron or Ronaldo or when Tiger Woods was going strong, Roger Federer, Neymar. Damn, Conor McGregor is a bigger global superstar than the heavyweight champion of the world still. How does that happen? How is the most popular fighter in the world today not Tyson Fury? He's an undefeated fighter who's beaten the most accomplished heavyweight in the 21st century, Klitschko, and then the biggest threat to him presently, not once but twice in Wilder. He speaks English better than 60% of the American citizens born in this country. He knows how to sell a fight. He's great on the mic. He has great charisma. The guy's up there singing after he won the fight. He has great skills as a pure boxer that extend to both offense and defense. Allows him to deliver shots with true power. He's the guy who's going to knock out somebody. He's the guy who shows heart getting off the canvas not once, but twice against one of the best, if not the greatest knockout heavyweight fighter that there has been in the past, I don't know, couple of decades. He has a great backstory overcoming personal demons and problems to get back to the mountaintop to become a better fighter. What's the problem here? What is the reason here? Why is it that now Tyson Fury is going to disappear for four to five to six months? Where is this guy on Kimmel? Where is this guy on uh, Fallon? Where is this guy on SportsCenter? Where is this guy for the NFL when the, with, with uh, Fox or, uh, I don't know, CBS? Where, why can't we see this guy? Why, is it, why isn't this guy on Good Morning America? Why is this guy going back over to Europe and going back to other these other countries and be on those type of shows? Why are we not seeing, why all of a sudden, you know, um, Fury lives in Henderson, Nevada. So why aren't we seeing more of this guy? Why now is he going to disappear? They did the same shit with Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua, <clears throat> when he knocked out Klitschko, man, that motherfucker the next week should have been on every single American TV show that there is. Everything that they could have got him on, they should have been on. Anthony Joshua should have been on. Good-looking cat, big, strong, nice guy, speaks well, charismatic. Get the people's appetite whetted for someone like this. Get Anthony Joshua known. Tyson Fury should be more known than he is right now. But guess what? The man's going to disappear again. Except for being on a short stint with the WWE. 
What else has he done to bring attention to the non-boxing fans? Whose fault is that? Is that Fury? Does he not want to do that? Is because of the mental health and some of the things that he went through the first time that he's a little bit leery to get back into that lifestyle again and it might, you know, unleash some new demons? What, what's, what's going on with that? But man, we need to see some more. If the man isn't fighting, he should be out there doing something and he's not doing anything. So, you know, what, what opportunities does he have to elevate his status as being a public figure that transcends the sport? Well, number one, you need an awesome opponent. And while Dillian White and Otto Wallen, which those two fight in October 30th, the winner's going to face Tyson Fury, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't excite the average sports fan. It might excite boxing fans, especially with Dillian White, who's, you know, been a guy who should have been fighting for the championship for years, but uh, he's been screwed one way or the other. Otto Wallen has already faced Fury once and nearly got a win after opening up a huge cut on um, Fury's eyebrow, but if you remember that fight, that really wasn't a big shingling ding ding in terms of uh, interest and in, you know the pay you know the payoff in terms of uh, momentum toward boxing in that regard. So what Dillian White's going to win or Otto Wallen's going to win? That's going to be Tyson Fury's next opponent. That's supposed to uh, elevate the sport. That's supposed to get non-boxing fans interested in that. Possible contenders. I mean, you could be. What, Alexander Usech, Anthony Joshua winner? That's not going to inspire anybody. I would rather have that fight over in Europe than in the than in the States. If you want um, more people caring about that fight, especially if Usech wins, which if Joshua is going to try to box a boxer, then congratulations, Usech, you're going to be winning. You know, again, I could have saved a lot of damage done with the opportunity if Joshua Fury would have gotten together and fought this year when they had the chance. But who else is he going to fight? Andy Ruiz, Joseph Parker, Luis Ortiz, Joe Joyce. Those names aren't going to elicit any type of, ooh, yeah, the world's going to stop to watch this. So maybe if Joshua beats Usyk, then, you know, you've got two guys, British guys, and actually they're going to be fighting for something, the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. And have that shit over in uh, London in front of 90-something thousand people in Wembley, the first fight, and then bring it over to Jerry World or bring it over to uh, T-Mobile or bring it over to MSG for the second fight. But I think if they fought, that uh, Fury would beat the shit out of Joshua and that would be the end of that. But, you know, I, I just... Great heavyweight champions... And the impact of great heavyweight champions, there's nothing like it. There's no other athlete in sports. A heavyweight championship fight, I mean a real heavyweight championship fight, eclipses any sporting event globally with the possible exception of the World Cup. I mean, if you take a look at Jack Johnson versus Jim Jeffries, the fight of the century, the Great White Hope, July 4th, 1910. If you take a look at Jack Dempsey versus George Carpentier, the fight of the century, the first fight to produce a million dollars in revenue. Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling, second fight. Do I need to go on about that one? If I do, then you're an idiot. Get a history book and learn something. Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston, the birth of Muhammad Ali, which is really the birth of where we're going in this country as far as the positive equality type of situation for this generation moving forward Ali versus Joe Frazier not once but twice and three times the most impactful athletes in this country's history Muhammad Ali Joe Lewis Jack Johnson I mean come on that's what the heavyweight championship that's what the heavyweight champion is supposed to be all about not coming second fiddles of some Irishman named Conor McGregor so man 
What are we going to do about this boxing? Get it together. What are they going to do about that, Armando? Get it together. Fury, Wilder, three fights, three fights. They had nine combined knockouts and nine nine combined knockdowns. That's nice. No one's interested in seeing a fourth fight between them. And uh, for me, again, this is I mean, the trilogy. It's nice, but it's not Ali Frazier. It's not Ali Norton. It's not Floyd Patterson versus Ingemar Johansson. It's not Riddick Bowe versus Evander Holyfield. Big, big difference is the fact that each one of those trilogies I just named, one of the fighters actually won a fight. The trilogy between Wilder and Fury, Wilder didn't win a fight. He drew, and many people thought that he lost that fight. If he didn't knock uh, Fury down twice, he would have lost that fight. So this is pure domination from one fighter over the other. Ken Norton, really the third fight between Norton and Ali. Norton won that fight in uh, New York City. Ali versus Frazier. I mean, Frazier came second, one around uh, close to beating Ali. Floyd Patterson, Ingemar Johansson. I mean, titles changed on that one. Really, Bo, Evander, Holyfield. I mean, that, that situation, especially the first two fights with all the drama that was uh, doing with that, with, uh, with, with the guy flying down, uh, coming down into the crowd. I mean, what does this trilogy have that can match any of those great heavyweight boxing trilogies so you know great job for Deontay Wilder he says he wants to fight again that's fine but uh you know he's 36 years old he's been dominated in the last two fights he's gotten his ass whooped he's taken a lot of physical damage if he's going to be fighting to win a heavyweight championship is he fighting to, if he's going to be fighting to get another fight with uh Tyson Fury retire is Joshua Wilder still available still interesting Possibly, not like it would have been five years ago, but what, better late than never? They said that about Pacquiao and Mayweather. They made a boatload of money. Not saying that Joshua and Wilder would make that type of money, but, you know, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. All right, class is about to end. Thank you very much, Armando. Again, your homework for tonight is to go ahead and take a look at George Foreman versus Jimmy Payne. I hope that uh, I have educated you, enlightened you about the heavyweight division. And uh, you have a good day and say hello to Mary and the kids for me. All right, that's it for me. My name is Wendell Wallace. Thank you so doggone much for listening to my podcast. Rate, review, download, load, subscribe, enjoy all of those good things. Be safe, be well, be strong, be all of those things. I want to go to uh, up to Mesquite tomorrow and see what I can do to uh, help this world move in a better place through unity love harmony understanding of others remember man moral fiber the person regardless of what nationality regardless of what the skin tone regardless of political affiliation regardless of who they love regardless of who they worship treat everybody the way that you would want to be treated who deserves that respect who deserves that love in that um in, in the best of you please if you could do that for me your children and their children and their children moving forward would very much appreciate it. Music. One, two, three, four. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way